The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Good to see you, man. What's happening? What is really happening? Your show was fucking great. It, thank you. I really enjoyed it. I'm so happy to hear that. What that means to me is even on an off night, we're still pretty That was an good. off night? Way off. Really? Bad sound. Sound but was bad? For me. Sounded good. We have high standards. <laughs> I guess. I mean, it was it was excellent. Thank you. So what else was wrong? High the sound? Well, I like to dance, and I like to get the the mojo flowing at maximum right. photon speed. Right. And my knee was locked up, so I couldn't fully flow, which is disconcerting, and it actually throws my singing off as well. Mm. But Well, we talked afterwards about your knee injury, but while you were on stage, I didn't notice anything. You moved great. Mm. I can move better, but thanks. The good news for me <laughs> is I'm surrounded by John, Chad, and Flea. Which is just like a, a huge uplifting energy circle. So they carry me. Yeah. How yeah. did you injure your knee? Is it just from all the years of dancing on stage? Pounding, pounding yeah. on stage for a hundred years. Yeah. You know Maynard from Tool. He's got a uh, artificial hip. Mm -hmm. Stomping. <laughs> from stomping. From stomping on stage, he blew his fucking hip out. I'm not surprised. What I am surprised is that Mick Jagger hasn't blown both of his hips out. Oh, man. We saw him when he was at CODA, the Circuit of the Americas here in Austin. It was insane. For, first of all, it was like a psychedelic experience just seeing him. Because mm -hmm. you can't believe that's really Mick Jagger up there. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the fucking Rolling Stones. They were incredible. And he's still dancing around. He's as old as Biden. He's as old as... <laughs> Which is an official expression, by the yes. way. Yes. I mean, that's he's like commensurate. It's like, I think he's basically the same age, right? Like, what is Biden? Biden's like 78. And I think Mick Jagger is like 78 as well. I think he's in the neighborhood, right? How old is he? You could ask your phone. I, I, I think yeah. it's he's because 79. he's... He's 79. 79. Jeez. He's so light. Yeah. His bone structure, his anatomy is light. Yeah. And he's, he's written a song or two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's older by four months or so. He's older than Biden. Yeah. That's insane. As you said, he's older than Biden. But meanwhile, he talks great. No, he's not. No, he's not. I'm sorry. No? No, I misread that. They're twins. Biden's older by like eight months. Oh, okay. November Biden's 42 old. versus Those eight months are a motherfucker. The eight months we'll are the difference. You and I shall see. <laughs> Hopefully we'll see. Yeah. If we're lucky. We need those black. How old are you now? I am looking at 60. Looking at it. I'm looking at it. Yeah. You're two weeks away. Wow. Yeah. How's it feel? You look great. I feel, thank you. You look great too. Thank you. Yep. Um, I don't know how old you are, but. 55. What, oh, wow. You look real good. Thank you. Yeah. We could grapple later. <laughs> um, it feels wonderful. It feels so good. If I can, if I can do what I want to do for the next 20, 30 years, I'm just hallelujah. It's just a matter of the joints, the joints holding up. I think they're going to repair. I yeah. think they're going to repair. I went hard last night, and I feel better today than I did when I saw you a week ago. Oh, well, that's great. Did you get any treatments done on the knee or anything? Osteopathy. Osteopathy. What is that? Osteopathy is a medicine, a hands-on medicine, where you have to study for 12 years before you can touch a patient. And they, they study anatomy, connectivity, all tissues, all bones. And this girl is French, Lucille. 
and she gets in there and she starts feeling the hamstrings connected to the knee bones, connected to the calf things, connected to the archery foot, and she just starts allowing your body to heal. So she makes some space with her hands and her mind. Her mind? Oh, yeah. You have to be focused. There's a concentration to mm. it. It's not the biggest part, but it's a part. You're looking at me. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I had a frozen shoulder. I went to every doctor in the world. Nothing. Oh, really? Three visits with Lucille. You know what's great for shoulders is hanging from your, your hands. On yeah. A chin-up bar. Yeah. It's really good for that. Sounds good. If you have frozen shoulders, impingements, and things mm. like that. And there's a theory that, you know, as we are primates, our ancestors swung from trees and hung on trees and that the joint uh, expresses itself better when it's like constantly put through a range of motion mm -hmm. and hanging from things. And people, especially people with sedentary lifestyles that n never really uh, put that kind of like where your, your body weight sort of stretches out your joint, your joints can kind of collapse and they get impinged and they, they you know, they I, get kind I, of fucked up. I hear that. That makes sense. We are primates, and it's also mental. Your brain depends on walking. Mm. So old school us, we would walk all day, every day. Right. However, 20, sure. 30 miles, and it's good for your brain. It keeps it the Alzheimer's away. You, yeah. stop, you stop walking, the brain kind of freezes up. Yeah, that's true. Activity is one of the very best ways to fight off all sorts of uh, mental degeneration. Yeah. Yes, and, yeah. and music. Yeah, well, that's why, you know, you look so great at 60 because you're always bouncing around and moving. And you, you, I feel bad for people that aren't, like, active, mm. you know, because you, you, you will deteriorate to a point where you're not going to be able to bring it back. If you can maintain, it's so much better to maintain than it is to try to rebuild. Agreed. People need a push. People need an inspiration. They need yeah. something that they love and they need maybe somebody to do it with. Right. They need something fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the key. Like some people love running, some people love skiing. Like whatever you love, like doing something that you really enjoy doing that keeps you active, I think is a is a great key to that. I need the push. You've been, I mean, when did you start? You've basically been doing music your whole life. I feel like I started late, relatively speaking. Relatively. Yeah. So but you've been performing since you were how old? 83, which would put me at 21. It's pretty young. But my friends had been studying and playing and practicing music since they were 10, the guys that I hooked up with musically. Mm. So 21 is kind of like... You already have to have started music. Let's like with a sport. If you right. start at 21, ah, it's yeah. kind of late in the game. That's true. So I just got lucky that I had been studying other things that fed into music. So I had something to say. I had rhythm. I had love for dance, love for sound, love for my friends. But I have been performing since I was 21. It's a long time to be in the public eye, living that life. Mm. It is, and it's it's both wonderful and horrific at the same time. <laughs> the public eye, specifically. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think I would trade it because it comes with joy and perks, and it's a unique experience. But I love my anonymity to pieces. Yeah. I love going out in the world and just. Not Can get... you still do that? Yes, not often. 
But when I do, I love it. When you can sneak by. Uh, I'm not even sneaking. I, not, just, I mean, you don't have to sneak. But I, I mean, think it's the anti-sneak approach that makes you invisible. Mm. You go about your business and maybe you just blend in. Mm. Los Angeles, California is the place where I get noticed and messed with the least. Because they're so used to famous people there. Jaded. Yeah. In a bubble, self-obsessed. Right. They could care less. The minute I walk around New York City, hey, Kedis, <laughs> caught you on the TV, whatever. Yeah, completely different sort of scenarios with giant masses of people. The New York mass of people is not connected to show business. No. So you have I, I, less of the self-obsession. And they love seeing people that they relate to. Right. And they'll let you know about it. They'll, right. they'll stop the car. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But the Los Angeles scene, yeah, that's that's so true. That That's one of the reasons why a lot of people that are famous actually enjoy living in Los Angeles because people are jaded. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, it's kind you of can hang out. People don't care. They'll leave you alone. I agree. I miss you. As a fellow resident, I understand. But, yeah, L.A., geographically, it's gorgeous. It's it's a harsh toke these days. It's different. You know, I got out in, um, we started looking in May of 2020, like right when, uh, when they expanded, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve and it got to uh, a month and a half. And I was like, oh, this is not going away. Mm Mm-hmm. And I started seeing that there was other places where they were taking a more sane approach. I immediately started looking. Mm-hmm. But I had been thinking about getting out of L.A. anyway. Just that I get anxiety about the sheer numbers of people. The sheer, there's the traffic, the, the just the untenable volume of human beings was just like there's a certain level of anxiety that comes with that. Mm-hmm. That when I would go to other places, like if I would go to Montana or I would go to like Utah, it was like, oh, this feels better. Like this is relaxing. There's like less humans. I hear that. You did live in the boondocks, did you not? I lived a little outside. Like I didn't live in the city city, but so it was nice that I got my little break there. Mm-hmm. But it was always I was always aware it was around the corner. It was always there. I mean, I was I was living near. There was a lot of like owls and coyotes and you know mountain lions. There's a lot of shit out where I live. Those are my people. Yeah, yeah. Those are my people. You're <laughs> Those naming are your, my your people. Creatures. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of that here. Yeah. Yeah. The traffic thing is hell. I ride a motorcycle to circumvent as much of it Do as you possible really? every day. Wow. Every day, unless it's freezing or raining. That is a wild thing to do in Los Angeles, to ride a motorcycle, because there's so many people on their phone, and there's so many cars. You it's just have no- to be defensive. It's normal to me. Yeah? It's second nature. Have you always ran, r- ridden a motorcycle? Uh, I started off crashing mini bikes through backyard fences <laughs> in Michigan, and I put it down for a while, and then sometime in the 80s, Chad Smith showed up on a Suzuki, and I was like, let me try that big bike. And I was hooked. Wow. Yes. So you just get around on motorcycles? I do, on a cop bike. Really? A cop, yeah, it's the bike that the California Highway Patrol use. So it's a big cruiser. <clears throat> it's big. It has a windshield. It's fast. It handles like a magic carpet. Yeah? Um, yeah, I love it. Wow. Yes. That's. Do you have a car, too, or do you only 
No, I have a couple of cars, um, but it's a pain in the ass, like to go down the PCH and just yeah. wait for an hour to go somewhere. That's the thing about LA too. You're allowed to split the lanes, and people are starting to recognize, <clears throat> like, oh, there's a bike. I have to make space. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yes. Some people are dicks, though. They just like yeah. Oh yeah. Scoot <clears throat> over so you can't go by. I have moments. It's it's also an opportunity to see where I'm at as a human being. Like, do I want to kill these people or do I just want to forgive them? Just forgive them and carry on with my life. Yeah, not that's worry better. about it. It's better. It's a little opportunity to just exercise that aspect of your thought. Yeah. Also in a car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Who am I? Well, that's one of the nice things about here. Like people let you in. It's so different. They let you in the lane. They wave. It's like it's a different, like they're more friendly. People f feel like, I think in Los Angeles, the problem is there's so many human beings that human beings become a bother. Like, God, there's so many people. Whereas here, it's only like a million people. So it's like people are just a little bit more appreciative of each other. It's, they don't, there's not that level of tension. This is what I hear. I had a conversation with Guy on the way over here who's kind of investigating options. Texas, nice, no taxes. And I was like, well, what do you like about it? What, what's your main attraction? And he said, people are kinder. People are more thoughtful. Yeah, and I don't think that's something that people would necessarily associate with Texas. Mm -hmm. But that's they call it Texas-friendly. That's like literally how they describe it. There is no LA-friendly. Not really, unfortunately. There's there's some friendly people. The, on the plus side is when you do meet a person who's friendly, you really appreciate it. It's mm -hmm. like a sunny day in Seattle. Yeah, you know, good point. Good they, point. It, they mean a lot to you. Yep. If you could find a really kind, cool person in Los Angeles, it means a lot. Well noted. Yeah. Yes. So what's the horrific, the horrific aspect of being famous for so long? Uh, lack of anonymity. So that's the big one for you. Uh, yes. I, I, I really have no complaints. I, I love my job so much. I don't know what I did to deserve it, but it is. You're really good at it. That's what you did to deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> I do work hard, um, but I was taught how to work hard by my boys in the band because they all work hard, really hard. They could tell. They're obsessed. They're obsessed with practicing and learning and pushing the boundaries and evolving and tapping into that which you cannot see or, or totally understand. Horrific. Maybe I exaggerated with the word horrific. Um, it's a good word, though. It's a good word. It's got the word horror. I know you like some horror. <laughs> yeah. It's not really horrific if I think about it. No. I take that back. It's just inconvenient sometimes, maybe. Sometimes I'm shy and bashful and reclusive, and I just want to chill. Chill, and people want to take pictures or have right. me, have me talk to their girlfriend on the phone. Or yeah, small price, small price. This brings me to my new philosophy in life, which I remind myself every day. Can I yeah, give it to you, please? So two months ago, we were playing at the MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. Big, beautiful stadium full of people excited to sing and dance. And these two painter sisters from Texas, raised in Manhattan, brought their friend to the show. We're like, 
great. Come and we'll hook you up with tickets and passes. Come say hello. Beautiful people. And the girl they brought was radiant in every aspect of the word. Physically beautiful, energy, kindness, just light. And all of my friends are like, who's that girl? That girl's amazing. Just a, a friend of our painter friends. And a week went by, and I opened the paper, and I saw this girl had died unexpectedly. Went 33-year-old actor, model, artist. Wow. And she woke up and died. And they're not sure why. Maybe sepsis. <clears throat> Who knows? Young people are dying these days. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, I woke up today and I complained about how long my room service took, how muggy it was outside and the traffic. And and I decided this, this girl was just a giver of a human being and she got plucked. So I said to myself, don't be a bitch. Nothing to do with gender or animals, yeah. just bitchliness, selfishness, yeah. self-obsessed, self-centered, whiny. Weakness. Yeah. And, and what do I have to complain about? Right. Very no. little. Very little. Relatively speaking, it's almost like you can't complain. Can't complain. Yeah. You I can't. mean, let's look around the world. Yeah. Syria, Yemen, Ukraine. Right. On and on. Yeah. So every time I go there, which is daily, I wake up and I'm like, hey, where's, where's my thing? And how come these people aren't doing what I want them to do? The voice comes into my head, don't be a bitch. Right. So that's my new live by philosophy. It's a good philosophy. It's it's hard for people sometimes to have perspective, you know, because your life is your life. And any little irritation, you know, if you just allow momentum to take you in that general direction, which is a lot of what people do, they sort of operate on momentum. They don't think. They just react. And then you you lose perspective. Mm -hmm. It's hard sometimes to pull it back. And that's. Do you meditate at all? I do meditate at all. Not enough, <laughs> but I do, and I love it, and it's my go-to. Yeah. And uh, I believe in it. Rick Rubin actually shared the the art of meditation with me when I was a kid, younger, early '90s. Um, he brought the TM institute mm. into his living room and offered the whole band an opportunity to learn and we were so crass and obnoxious that we laughed through the entire lesson <laughs> this you know east indian guys up there with the chalkboard pointing at sound waves and different transcendental meditation concepts and we're just laughing obtrusively can't stop but it wasn't because we didn't feel it or understand it or believe in it. It was just the presentation itself. But it stuck and we got our mantras and we got our practice and I did it religiously for a while and then I put it down. But now whenever I feel like the, the monkey mind mm. in a car, in a plane, in a train, in my bathtub, in a tiny little kid's chair somewhere on the back porch, I'll take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and it's profound. Yeah. You? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I, I like to do it in different places. I do it uh, a lot of times in the sauna. I like to do deep breathing exercises in the sauna, so I'm kind of uncomfortable at the same time. Mm -hmm. And also, like, I multitask, kill two birds with one stone that way. 
Yeah. But it allows me to resetting, like, and just having time alone with your thoughts. Um, I have friends in show business that are never alone, and they're the most troubled, I, I find, because they don't have space to just sit and just sort of put it all into perspective and bring yourself back to baseline and appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just constantly, look what I was talking about, momentum. That's a real problem with people, is that you, you're doing things and things are happening and you keep going and then the stresses of these things compile and pile on and you never have a chance to step back and go, wow, what a wild ride I'm on. This is incredible. This is amazing. I should be so thankful and so appreciative. Instead, you're just so caught up. My agent said, what? Mm. And what am I doing? Why do we have to be there then? And uh, uh, uh. You have to bring it back to baseline, appreciate where you're at, and say, wow, how lucky. How lucky How lucky just to be a human in 2022. What a great time. You don't die of cholera. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what, a, what a great time with all the medicine and fucking technology and, and all the, you know, obviously there's downsides to all that stuff too, but pretty fucking good time to be alive. What a great roll of the dice to be here and to be an American. And, and this is a place where you can, you're free to pursue your goal. You don't have to wear a headscarf. You know, you're not like in a, a religious uh, autocrat society where you're told what to do, which happens in 2022. You're, so you're in this place, as imperfect as it is, which provides you with an immense amount of freedom. We're fu fucking so fortunate. So fortunate. We're fortunate at this very moment. Yes. However, Steve Van Zandt is required to wear a headscarf. Oh, he has to. Yeah. 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 That's part of his gig, though. It's New Jersey. Yeah. So it's a law. Well, he's, yeah. you know. Well, seeing him on The Sopranos with the fucking wig on, it was like, wow. Ooh. It's pretty, he, yeah. he, he was amazing. Isn't it amazing when someone's a, a really great musician but also can act their ass off? He did great. I think it was very custom for his oh, yeah. sensibility. And he's a good musician. I respect him as a musician, no doubt. Not that he cares. But he's an even better musical historian. Is he? His radio show, Underground Garage. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. my God. I've he heard it's amazing. breaks it down. The players, the people, the producers, the eras, the cities, mm. the, the what led to what led to what. He's good. I really appreciate musicians that have a deep appreciation for the history of music and, and other. Like, you know who's great about that? Henry Rollins. Mm. That motherfucker loves music so much. He has this incredible stereo system in his house, this amazing like, collection of records. And, you know, he has a radio show as well. I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but when I had him on the podcast to talk to him about his love of music and love of collecting records and everything mm -hmm. like the, just a fucking excitement in his voice and his the passion in his eyes the way he describes these things it's so infectious it's infectious it's also a beautiful subject a historical subject to mm. spend your life studying well yeah. well you're in it right you are a musician but to someone observing it from the outside like myself it's one of the more fascinating aspects of human culture is that people create sounds and th you, th you, you create them with lyrics and you put it together in this way that literally acts as a drug. Mm -hmm. Like it makes people feel good. That's you know, why there's it... something about that. There's something about it. When the music, like when a song comes on that you haven't heard in a long time, you know, like Midnight Rider, like the Almond Brothers. <laughs> 
like the beginning, you're like, holy shit, that fucking song. Like, whoo, you get, mm. it's a drug. Yes. It's it, a drug. Well, literally, your, your brain yes. is releasing its serotonin. Yes. And, and it's, there's something that we, we've come to expect because it's a normal part of life. We all listen to music. It's, but there's moments where you can just step outside of it and realize like how amazing the creation of music is. It's so amazing. <laughs> That's why I became a musician, because of the high that I got from listening to Henry Rollins, Black Flag, drinking mm. black coffee. Made me feel so alive, so full of everything, so drugged up. I want to make people feel like that. Defunct made me dance like lightning bolts on the dance floor. I want to make people feel like that. That was my number one motivation. And, and the love of my found family, my high school boys, just wanting to hang out with them. But more than anything, it was I heard the message by Grandmaster Flash in The Furious mm. Five. And I just wanted to roll down the street lighter than air. How do I make people feel like that? How can I be a part of something that makes people feel like floating down the street? Mm. It really is. It's... It's a drug. It's a <laughs> super positive, creative drug that makes you incredibly connected to the people that that make it. You know, I mean, I was watching the, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Elvis movie, the new movie on Elvis. Did not. It's pretty I, interesting. I have my own movie of Elvis in my head that I didn't want to change. Right. But go ahead. I don't think it'll change it. All right. I mean, it's, you know, it's dramatization. It's obviously Tom Hanks is the colonel. You're seeing Tom Hanks. That's it's, decent casting. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Oh, he's great in it. He's great in it. It's 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 really good. It's really good. I mean, it leaves out a lot. kind of glosses over a lot of shit. Um, but you realize that the reaction that these people are having to his music, it's like, and, and everybody's like, what the fuck is going on? It's like they're all on drugs. Like mm. all these women are on drugs. They're screaming, they're throwing panties at them. And back then, there wasn't really someone like him before him. You know, so he comes around and they all freak out because it's a new drug. Mm -hmm. And it's this new feeling that you get from this, this creation, this you know combination of artists and music and sounds with the, delivered by this one guy. And he's saying, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And they're all going, crap. That's what wild. I have been. Wild. It was great. It took me so long to realize how good he was. Part of my, my fuel as a teenager in young 20s was just hate of other people's art. Like, mm. ah, we'll show you. We'll make something different and better. And Yeah. Which is positive. It has to happen. You have to rebel against that which has come before you at a certain point. Yeah. But as I got older, I realized this man is the real deal. As was Little Richard, oh, as yeah. were the Everly Brothers, as were all the boys that led up to Elvis. Sure. <clears throat> Flea and I went to Graceland in the early 80s. We were on tour, we were in a van, we hadn't slept on a bed for months. We, all we had was the leather jackets on our back and nothing else. But we were like in Memphis playing a show, you know, probably in a barn or something. And we're like, didn't Elvis have a house here? Can't we go like go walk through his house? So we went to Graceland when it was not uh, commercialized. 
It was a very small little tour. You could walk right through the house, into his cars, the garage. There were no restrictions. And I went in there, and I was so obnoxious <laughs> and so horrible because all these people were just in awe of every little element of Elvis's life. I was like, isn't this where he took a shit on the toilet and like ah. OD'd on pills? And because I was just a little idiotic punk rocker yeah. who had no broader sense of greatness and how people might be relating to this guy. Yeah, it's just a a stupid little memory I feel embarrassed about, but that's who I was at the time. Well, that's so normal for young artists to hate on art that they think is uncool or commercial or derivative mm -hmm. like that was the knock on elvis who's der derivative of black culture but what's he gonna do that's what he likes you know he's like he's affected and influenced by those people and he's creating his own music like what is he supposed to do not do it obviously people loved it it was amazing <laughs> you I mean but I, I get the resentment from those artists i understand that but there's, there's a thing from young people coming up where you just want to you want to hate on the things that you think are uncool, you know? We we made a, a career out of that for a couple of years. <laughs> um, but as far as, like, borrowing and using culture that you love, which, I you know, can be construed as appropriation, I'm all for it. I want to be appropriated. And I think that's what culture is for. Yes, enjoying and loving and learning and taking and assimilating yeah it should be that we we went to uh yeah it should be that i want to dress like you because you look great i mean it should be that with art with food with everything with yeah, architecture on. yeah i mean that's that's literally we are, are building on the backs of the people that came before us all of us are in everything we do in the way we talk in literature, in everything, we we build upon the people that came before, and this just this idea of cultural appropriation being a negative thing to me is preposterous. Like it's it's a respect. There's no you don't culturally appropriate things that you don't love. <laughs> it's a love. You love those things, you know. Yes. If you're cooking Mexican food and you happen to be Dutch, <laughs> like who gives a shit, man? It's, That's not going to be good Mexican, but yes, it who might gives be. A shit? Mm. Who's that guy, Rick Bayless? He's Skip Bayless's brother. What? Right? Skip Bayless's brother. Rick Bayless is like one of the premier Mexican food chefs in the world. And he's an American. And people shit on him because this guy has like this deep love of Mexican cuisine. It's very infectious. <laughs> Don't shit on him. He, please. he makes all, I mean, not physically. He makes all these videos and he talks about, I mean, he's like famous. He's got a restaurant in Chicago that's like this famous Mexican restaurant. This is the guy. But this guy, he's like super into Mexican food. Is that his uh, Instagram? Yeah. Rick underscore Bayless. Yeah. So it's really all about the burrito. Can he make a good burrito? I bet he can make anything, man. Okay. He, that fucking guy loves Mexican food. I mean, but it's real. It's a real love. Like, what do you want him to do? Not do it? I so want him don't, to do it. Yeah, but ima imagine people that are mad at him. Like, don't do what you love because what you weren't you born on the nope. same patch of dirt nope. as the people. Come on. It's crazy. No, I love appropriating. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been doing it my whole life, and I love it. I'll never stop. We went to a, a Native American reservation Wednesday last Wednesday to play a show and about nine months ago we were putting out all this music 
and Flea had been to a, a powwow. And he's like, the dancing blew me away. They're so dedicated. They're so beautiful, so artful. It's like, we got to get to a reservation and play music. I was like, great idea. Let's do it. So it finally came to pass last Wednesday. And uh, somehow we chose the Hoopa tribe in Northern California, in Hoopa Valley, California. And we arrive, and it's a school gymnasium, and it's a free concert. And all of our equipment is there. And it's just cool people. They're very poor and very isolated. And we just wanted to go rock out for them. But the first thing they did was give us all this cool stuff that they made, which is Native American gear. And mm-hmm. they wanted us to wear it. They're not worried about appropriation. We could sing songs all day long about our take, like my band, on their experience. They love it. If we get it right, if we get it wrong, they just love that we care. Mm. And it was the best show of the year for us because nobody paid. It was kids in a school gymnasium in the middle of nowhere. Surreal. They didn't believe we were coming. They're like, (laughs) we don't believe it. Why? Why us? Like, "Ah, we chose you. Let's just have fun. That's amazing. But they they definitely defied the concept of appropriation, like right off the bat. Here's our stuff. Please, please wear it. Well, I think that's that's great. Like they love the fact that you appreciated their culture. We love the culture. We love it. And, you know, people are people. Um, I don't care what class you come from, what race you come from, what gender you come from, people are people. You're going to be assholes and you're going to be amazing people. Just people are people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the variables, the the differences, that's one of the cooler things. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I don't want everybody to assimilate and become <laughs> one thing, but I, I do love the fact there are so many, vari- there's so much variety of types of cultures. There's so much. Thank God. Di- thank God. It's one of the cooler things about humans. There's so much different way. There's so many different ways to live life. It's one of the cooler things about the USA. Yeah. That, that, that was our secret weapon to being yeah. a culturally interesting place. Yeah. Th- that invented things like jazz and the blues and rock and roll. Stand up comedy. Stand up comedy. Yeah. It's an American art form. Yes, because we have the great confluence of everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody together. Everybody. Yeah. I, I love all these other countries we visit on tour, but it's one flavor. It's primarily one flavor. And then you get here, and it's the appropriated, assimilated melting pot. Yeah, it really is. It's a wild place to be. We're very fortunate in that regard. Maybe even Texas barbecue. <laughs> Texas barbecue comes from Germany. What? Yeah. It's Germans. Okay. Germ- the Germans that moved to this part of Texas, they uh, smoked their meats. And they, they they changed it a little bit and adapted it, and it ultimately became Texas barbecue. But like Texas barbecue, like brisket, mm-hmm. like brisket is a cheap cut of meat. Brisket was for poor people. And so, you know, everybody, the expensive cuts of meats, like T-bones and ribeyes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, brisket, they had to figure out how to cook it and make it edible. and Because it's a tough, you know, brisket is like the, the, the below- the rib cage, like chest area. It's like a tough, like mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like gristly, not that much fat in it. And so they figured out 
cooking it slowly over low heat and doing it with mm-hmm. smoke. And that's how they created Texas brisket, which is now like the preferred meat. You go to a barbecue, everybody wants the brisket. I got introduced to brisket through the Jewish community. Yes, they love it too. I yeah. always I always thought it was Jewish. I didn't even realize it was a German, German. Texas barbecue. Yeah. Thing. Well, I mean, that's different chains of it, right? That's what's interesting. Like corned beef and, you know, like uh, pastrami. Very Jewish, right? <laughs> yes. And that's their, their way of cooking that food, you know? And uh, if you go to uh, Montreal, they, they, have, they call it smoked meat, you know? And you get, uh, like, smoked meat sandwiches, and it's basically like pastrami and corned beef, and they have their version of it up there. It's delicious. Have you considered starting a... Uh, wild animal barbecue establishment. It's so funny that you say that because I actually have. I actually talked to uh, my friend Philip Franklin Lee, who's a uh, he's a, a Michelin star chef. Who uh, he started um, this place, uh, Sushi Bar ATX, and now he runs uh, Sushi by Scratch, which is literally the most amazing sushi I've mm. ever had in my life. And uh, he's got a new burger place. Out here that he just opened, what's it called? Not a chance burgers. Is that what it's Not called? Not a damn chance. Not yeah. a damn chance burgers. Mm. Fantastic chef, and he and I actually talked about that. Because one of the things about Texas, as opposed to um, most other states, is that you can actually sell wild game here. Because um, wild game that's not indigenous to Texas, uh, they have a lot of uh, introduced species. Like there's an insane amount of animals that they've introduced into private ranches in Texas mm-hmm. that have come from Africa and India and like animals that are like endangered in other countries are prevalent here like oryx like a scimitar oryx it's very endangered i think where are they from it's from india or africa they're very endangered wherever they're from here they're common sounds ne- like a deer it's like a it's an like an antelope yeah it's like uh, they're they're wild looking creatures. So pull up a scimitar, or it's like almost like they're, looks like it's kind of in the goat family or something. They're they're crazy looking things. Scimitar oryx, Africa, North. Well, North Africa. Look, look, look at that thing. That is a wild looking animal, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in uh, Texas, they're common. A lot of be- <laughs> a lot of people have them, but it, wherever the fuck, what part of North Africa they're from. There's more tigers in captivity in Texas in mm-hmm. private collections How many? than there are in all of the wild of the world. What's that number? Thousands. 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 Yeah. I think it's somewhere between three and 5,000. There you go. There I you got go. one on my arm too, bro. Yes. Year of the Tiger. I have uh, a tiger with uh, Miyamoto Musashi from the Book of Five Rings. Okay. Do you know what that is? I don't. He's a, sa- Japanese. a samurai from yeah. the 1400s who uh, defeated 62 men in one-on-one combat, and he wrote a book on strategy that I read when I was a teenager, (laughs) when I was doing martial arts competitions. It's called The Book of Five Rings, and it it sort of shaped my philosophy in many ways on life, Mm -hmm. because as a samurai, he believed that to be the best sword fighter, you had to be balanced. You had to do calligraphy and poetry mm-hmm. and art, and you ha- you couldn't have any like holes in your game, your mental game, your spiritual game, and you. I like that. And he had a statement that he had a thing that he wrote that carried me throughout my whole life. It's once you understand the way broadly, you can see it in all things. 
And the idea is the way of sword fighting was much like the way of carpentry, was much like the way of art. You see what the way is. It's like get out of your own way mm -hmm. and see the path to greatness, see the path to creation, and that you can find it in all things. So once you see it, once you truly understand it, you're not bullshitting yourself, you're not filled with ego, you're not filled with false bravado and fake confidence, get out of that. Once you see the path, you'll see it in everything. It's Love like it. you see a pattern, and that pattern is of creation. And, of, and I think you recognize that. It's one of the things that I love about great things. When I see something great, whether it's great piano playing or someone who's great at chess or someone's great, I love seeing the path mm -hmm. and seeing someone who just like finds the thing to express whatever the energy inside of them is. You do have to get out of your own way. Got to get out of your own way. You really do. And people that don't get out of their own way, it's so sad. Like, I have friends that don't get out of their own way. I'm like, oh, I wish <laughs> I could tell you how to do that. Did I see your man in the lobby, the Book of Five Rings chap? Um, is, oh, he, the, is he pictured? The armor? Uh, so there's, with, there's, a, there's a painting, a Greg Overton samurai painting, yeah. but it's not necessarily oh, Musashi. Okay. okay. This is This is Musashi. That's him. Okay. That's him with the tiger. Yeah. Did he study animals? No. To figure just, out I their... Just, my, uh, my buddy Aaron Delavadova, who's the uh, tattoo artist that did that, he came up with this design. Just like... It's nice to have a tiger. Yeah. Tigers are always cool. <laughs> but anyway, Texas... So circling back... You can get wild game yeah. here and you can sell it. So there's a lot of restaurants here. There's, like, there's a great place called the Lonesome Dove. Here in Austin, and uh, Lonesome Dove actually serves wild game, Texas wild game. They serve like uh, they have like rattlesnake sausage, mm -hmm. and um, I would eat that Neil guy, which is uh, an Indian animal. It's really cool looking. Have you ever seen a Neil guy? Mm -mm. <sighs> Show that. I'm actually going hunting for one of these things, and the with the television show Meat Eater in December. But a, a Neil guy is this enormous, like 700 pound crazy antelope looking thing look at that that's a neil guy looks meaty isn't that wild looking buff powerful you were a vegetarian for a while right so on the on the subject of food yeah i love food i Me love too. eating food who doesn't i love it i eat it all day and i really respect everybody's choice to find their path for eating i i, I don't impose my concepts of eating on other people i want everyone to find what what works for them because we're all different right we all have different metabolisms different genetics absolutely and it has been a fantastic journey of trying everything under the sun for the longest time i just ate whatever you had i was so poor and so hungry whatever you're cooking that's what i ate that's my diet and then when it got to the point where i started learning about food I met a girl and her family was vegetarian. And she was so full of love, Ioni Sky. Love and light and just a good person and her whole vibe in the, the family house. I was like, I'll try that. So I did the vegetarian for a few years, got poor again and started eating whatever was available to sustain. And then I tried everything. Pescatarian, vegan, and my body just never totally vibed with any of those things perfectly. 
Then I met this girl, Terry Cochran, who's a scientist and a nutritionist. And she studies your genes, 23andMe, mm. takes days to study your genes, and plans out your food based on your genetics. And for me, it was wild frickin' animals. Mm. That's what I was resonating with. She's like, I want you to eat alligator, elk, moose, kangaroo. I was like, really? She's like, yes, all the injuries you're having are going to sort out for you. I was like, I'll try it. And the pandemic hit. I went to Kauai. I hired a chef who could source all of those things. Half of these pictures you're showing, antelope. And I had no choice but to eat it because that's all that was in my fridge. The dude would cook and leave me food. I felt the best I've ever felt in my life. The strongest, the fastest, the sharpest, mental clarity. So that's my diet now. Well, it's the most nutrient-dense food on earth. If you get wild game, it's it has the most protein, the most vitamins. When you we're talking about like a a piece of elk meat, if you look at it, it's a deep red color. Very red. And it's just rich with protein and amino acids. It's fantastic for you. You and, know, and I, I mean I'll know a lot of people ethically they don't like the idea of eating animals. I understand it. I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I understand that too. I love animals. Yeah, I do too. Those are, that's how I relate to. The thing about animals is they don't live forever. And the way they die in the wild is horrific. In comparison to the way I get them, the, the way they die without me is way worse. And they're not going to live forever. Nope. They have, if they're lucky, they get to 10, 11, 12. Crazy if they get to 12. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they're getting t torn apart by animals or they freeze to death. And the farm world is no bueno. No bueno. No, it's not good for us, not good for them. No. Except regenerative agriculture. When people are doing it correctly and they're allowing these animals to roam free on grass-fed farms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's ways that people do it. Like there's a guy named Joel Salatin who's got this uh, place called uh, Polyface Farms. And he is... Uh, an expert and a proponent of regenerative agriculture where the manure from the cows is the is the fertilizer for mm -hmm. the plants and the pigs they roam free and they, they they chew up the ground to get roots and then the chickens come along and it's like all these animals they have this symbiotic relationship with mm -hmm. the earth and that it's it's actually carbon neutral when it's done correctly well the, done the real question is though and this is what I, I've asked a lot of people this, and I can't really get a square answer. It's like, is that sustainable for enormous populations? It doesn't seem like it is. I think nature has a way of creating sustainability. And if you study nature, which that sounds closer to, yeah. it might be more sustainable than we think. Population is a, is a beast. Population's a beast. That's the, the issue is what's unnatural is a city. When you can jam 20 million people into an area that's not growing anything other than weed. Mm. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I mean, you're stuffing all these people into this area that has very, like Los Angeles, for example, very little water, you know, and everybody's like condensed and they're all getting food from somewhere. Well, they're, they're not growing it. They're getting so everything the weed has too. to be shipped. Yeah. Everything has to be shipped in. So you got all this, you know, the carbon that's coming from all the yeah. trucks that are shipping things in. My favorite is the wild boar. Mm. I love it to pieces. And, Really, it comes down to what are these animals eating because that, that's yes. what makes their composition. Yeah. So you look at a wild boar, like you said, they're eating roots and 
leaves and grubs and all this good stuff off the forest floor. Mm -hmm. And that's turning their meat into something beautiful. Yeah. And I honor their life and I and I respect the fact that I'm taking a life, but they don't live forever. And you're taking the body, you're not taking the spirit. The thing about wild boar here in Texas and in California as well, they have to shoot them because they're an invasive species. They brought them in, in you know, when the uh, Europeans came, like in the whatever year they brought them over to this country. Mm -hmm. And now, now they're everywhere. There's millions of them in Texas. And they, they literally have to hunt them. They have to because there's no natural predators or not, certainly not enough. I mean, their only natural predators really are mountain lions. And there's no way mountain lions can keep up with the way they breed. They their their gestation period is I think it's like three months three mm. weeks and three days so they can on in a perfect world they can have three cycles of gestation every year so they could have three litters a year they make babies yeah it's crazy how many they make and they just go from the time they're six months old when they're six months old they can give birth which is crazy. A little young. And they're just shooting out piglets. Yep, yep. And those little piglets are running around destroying crops, and there's no natural predators. Well, let me know when you start your wild game barbecue joint. All right, buddy. Please. I will. I wish if you lived out here, man, I'd supply you with food. I have a lot of meat. <laughs> I, I hook up a lot of my friends with uh, elk meat. It's surprisingly attainable. I got elk coming down the pike. I have a, a, a little tiny Irish chef called Anya. And if I say any animal to her, like, I'd like to try some alligator. She's, like, on the phone getting the ah. alligator scent. It works. Nice. Yes. Yeah, I alligator hunted in Florida this year. You hunted. Yeah. It's heavy. I respect that I can't do it. I'm too much of a punk to be able to do it. You're not a punk. You just don't want to do it. It's I, okay. I, I get it. I wouldn't want to do it either if I didn't. But I just... I was either going to become a vegan or I was going to become a hunter. That mm. was my; mm. those are my two paths. You should be able to kill the animal. Yeah, that's what I had. I had seen too many of those factory farming videos, and I was like, "Fuck all that!" And then um, my friend Steve Rinella from the show Meat Eater that I was talking to you about, he took me hunting, and I actually shot that deer right there. That's the first animal I ever shot. That, that skull on the table. It's a mm. mule deer that that's we shot. Mule. Yeah. Well, it's a deer. It's called yeah. a mule deer. Yeah, you mule deer. Um, and it's uh, from Montana. We shot that, and uh, I ate it, and I was like, okay, that makes sense. This makes sense. The experience is di it's difficult to attain. Yep. You have to work really hard for it. You're hiking in the mountains. You have to play the wind. You have to be smart. You know, there's a lot going on. And then the reward for it is, you know, mule deer like that was like a 250-pound animal. So mm -hmm. I'm eating that for a couple months. You've got some freezers. Yeah, exactly. No, I respect that, and I wish I had it in me to come face-to-face -face with the creature that I'm eating, that I'm taking. I just haven't found it yet. You don't have to. You don't have to. Especially an alligator. I love those guys. I fucking hate those things. I love them. I hate those things. Because when I was a little kid, I used to live in Florida. <laughs> I lived in Gainesville, and there was a lady that uh, lived in my neighborhood, and her dog got snatched. She's walking her dog, and this fucking alligator comes over and snatches her There's dog. There's no convenient market for the alligator. He's got he's got to find his dog every day. We can walk into a shop. They cannot. That's true, but fuck them. I love them. <laughs> they eat kids, man. They eat everything. They should. They've been they've been <laughs> they've been here 500 million years. They second have. only to the damn shark. They make good belts. 
Can't argue that. I buy alligator leather whenever I can. I don't like them. I like them. I love them. Really? And I, I love them in them my to tacos too. Soulless, evil creatures that are killing machines. This guy raised a baby alligator on his couch watching, you know, NFL games. Yeah, it's gonna bite his dick when he's not looking. It hasn't bitten his dick yet. <laughs> they cuddle. They kiss. Really? They they're like this Aww, on the couch. That's cute. Give them a chance. Okay. That's they're cute. survivors. Well, they definitely are survivors. They're I mean, gorgeous. they've been here forever. They're gorgeous. I definitely prefer them to crocodiles. Crocodiles can go fuck themselves. Tougher. Tougher. They're meaner. Yeah. They're mean. There was a uh, as are we, by the way, Joe. Yeah, we're pretty mean. We're very mean. Yeah. Well, we use nuclear weapons. Crocodiles just one one creature at a time. Because there's no shopping malls for them. It's true. It's true. What do they got to do? They yeah, they can't go to H E B and they have to be clever. Cruise the meat aisle. Yep. Yeah, it's true. That's true. I mean, I respect it. I get it. I understand it. But also, fuck you. <laughs> Best alligator farm on earth. Not a farm. It's kind of a, a sanctuary. St. Augustine, Florida. Have you been there? Uh, I've been to St. Augustine, yeah. Oldest city in the United States of America. Is it really? The single oldest city. Is that where like Cabeza de Vaca landed or the something? The Spanish landed there. Oh, yeah. wow. St. Augustine. That makes sense. It's a gorgeous town and some weird animal dude, rich guy, philanthropist, something, has a sanctuary with something like 700 different breeds of alligators and crocodiles, all, all very well kept. Breeds. Really? It's endless. Wow. From the biggest to the tiniest to the albinos to the blue. Wow. Pretty fascinating. Blue? Blue hue. Oh, wow. The albino was the, the wildest looking They're one. They're pretty freaky. Freaky and also a little extra aggressive. Really? By nature. Wow. The albino ones are. Yes. I saw an albino elk a couple of years ago. They, they, they're they very rare, but it's occasionally, it was a cow elk, female elk, and it was albino. Mm -hmm. It was really wild to see. It was like a ghost. That's like a spirit animal. Yeah. It was, it was really fascinating because I was hunting the males, so I wasn't interested in shooting her at all. Right. I just wanted to look <laughs> at her. I was like, wow, look at that thing. It's white. Just a pure white elk. Rare. Oh, so rare. Very, very rare. They, ha they have them in deer as well. And buffalo. Oh, they get white buffalo? White buffalo, very sacred to the natives Didn't of Ted Dakotas. Didn't Ted Nugent have a song about that? Ted Nugent might have had a song about the white buffalo. Great white buffalo. A song about him getting trampled by the buffalo. No, look at that. Look at that thing. Yes. Whoa. Yes. God, that's beautiful. They, it snuck into our lyrics on this last record. Wow, what a fucking cool animal. By the way, that is some of the most nutritious meat on buffalo. earth. Buffalo. Not, the, oh, not so necessarily the good. white, but just no, buffalo in general. not necessarily the white. Yeah. I, w I probably wouldn't shoot the nope. white ones. Nope. It's too, too rare. You're supposed to let it go. You are. Yeah. I think. They're too inspiring. Well, it's also, it's like, you know, why, you know, you just you want to kill the common. Yeah, you that's what I'm saying. You want to kill that rare... The occasional whale shows up with no pigment. Real? I've seen pink dolphins. White whales. Uh, in the Amazon, you have the pink dolphin. Yeah. But in the Pacific, you have the white ass whale. Actually, white. Pure white. Wow. Oh, that's Different right. Than this, or? Belugas. Yeah, they're pretty uh, white. Belugas are white, but there's also like an albino humpback, perhaps. Me. Cruising the coast of Australia somewhere. Oh, like a very, very rare version rare. of it. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
we went uh, whale sighting in Hawaii. Uh, I forget what time of the year it was. I want to say it's like around now. When is the when are the whales there? And, but anyway, you uh, you go out on a boat and uh, you just go out into the ocean. And they just look for them in the distance and get close to them, and you get to watch them breach, and they just fly through the water and just. Whoosh! It's incredible. You can't even. I mean, you know they're big, but until you actually see them in real life, like it doesn't sort of compute. And strong. Oh my god. And majestic, like intelligent, bizarre Beyond. mammals yes. that live in the ocean. That for some reason don't have hands and can't build stuff. Yeah. 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 Which is maybe a, a blessing for them. And they talk. And sing. Yeah. And love. Yeah. And yeah. I had a day of surfing with a, a mother and her calf Whoa. where I live in Malibu. And it was a great wave day, just epically beautiful, clear, perfectly shaped waves. But then we had a, a humpback and her kid on the sandbar because they like to rub their bellies on the sandbar. And she was kind of sitting right on the takeoff spot for surfing. Whoa. I was like, I don't really want to disturb mother and child, but I do have to get that wave. <laughs> So I got as close as I could to the takeoff spot, and they didn't care. They were like, "Go for it!" You know, we're just we're here. You're here. Spent hours surfing with a whale in my company. Wow. My friend Peter Atia, he's a, a doctor. He told me that orcas, the sounds that they make, and the the sounds, the, their ability to detect sounds. Like the frequency that they can project is similar to ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Like you know how use they use ultrasound yeah. to detect an injury, and they they can it. see through you. They can you. see through you, literally can see through you through the ocean. He goes, it's mind boggling. Like we don't even understand like what's going on in them. And when you see like an orca's brain in comparison to a human mm. brain, like they've um, they've done and, and the dolphins as well. Like dolphins. Their cerebral cortex is like 40% larger than a human being. So it's like massive brains where dolphins can have one. And an orca is basically a dolphin. It's like the cousin dolphin of a family. dolphin. Dolphin yeah. family, yeah. They can, they shut one half of their brain down when they go to sleep. Beautiful. So one half Ooh. is always awake to look out for danger and problems. Mm. So that's how they sleep. They don't sleep like us. They sleep like one half shuts off. Orca is my guy. They're amazing, man. That that's what's on my back. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Thought, Only killed people in captivity. That's, as long as we're showing ink. Oh way. yeah. So that face in the middle is the the Haida interpretation of the orca. Ah. Yeah, they don't kill people. Only in captivity. When they're which getting is fair game. Fuck yeah, it's fair, fair game. game. They're getting tortured. Any, anybody who's seen blackfish or anybody who knows what's going on in marine land, all the shit that's going on in Canada Hate right it. now, it's horrible, man. It's horrible. It's it's like it's it's a form of torture to a sentient animal that might be as smart as us. And one day we're going to look back on the captivity of orcas and dolphins and we're going to be horrified that people were so callous. Or right now. Or right now. Pretty horrified right yeah. now. Yeah. But I think... There's too many people that still don't understand. They still don't know. And they'll still go to sea, sea World and watch them jump out of the water. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And they're very family. Yeah. They're all about their pod. 
Right, which is why it's so sick that they take them from their pod and yeah. put them in a fucking swimming pool. Yeah, we can do better than that. Yeah. Well, you know, we should observe them only in the wild. That's what we should do. I mean, there's they shouldn't allow those places. They shouldn't exist. If you want to have a marine land or a sea world, it should literally be like a place where you can go and they have a giant screen and you watch documentaries of these creatures mm. so you could appreciate them. And maybe you could donate to some sort of a conservation group and they put some of that money to it. But to have them in captivity, fuck that. There's no reason for that. There's Agreed. zero reason for that. On my bucket list, which I don't really have, but if I did have a bucket list, hanging out in the wild with the orca, preferably surfing, which mm. can be done, but also I would just swim out to one. I feel it has to be done. That, yeah. That's a fear that I want to face. Because oh, they could just... If they wanted to, just swallow quit. you. Yeah, swallow. Yeah. But they won't because they no. never have. No, they don't. Isn't that wild? That they, they've actually helped people. There's people that have been drowning, people that have fallen off of boats, and they've helped them. They've actually rescued humans. Mm. Like, they're so smart, man. They're, they've just evolved in a way where they've never figured out how to manipulate their environment. They don't have to. They, they don't have to. They maneuver through 3D space. They, they use sound, and they, they communicate in a way that we can't even decipher. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of all the, the code smashers, all these people that have figured out these complex codes, and they can decipher them. They have no idea what those workers are saying. They know that they have dialects, mm-hmm. so they know they sound different in one part of the world than they do in other parts of the world. But they don't know what the fuck they're saying. They have no idea. Half of it's song. Yeah. They just like singing. I bet. Right? And dancing. Have you ever heard of John Lilly? John Lilly's the man who developed the sensory deprivation tank. And he's also a pioneer in interspecies communication. And one of the things he was doing, he was a legitimate scientist. Yeah. One of the things he was doing was um, trying to decipher dolphin communication and trying to get dolphins to speak English and uh, <laughs> they yeah he was why he was a wild dude he would take acid and get in a sensory deprivation tank right next to a, a tank filled with uh, orcas and he would try to communicate with them while he was tripping and one of the things he did was he developed this research center where they had an orca that lived with a woman and she lived in this house that was filled with water so the orca could swim around. So for her to get to her bed, she had to like, you know, the water was like, it wasn't an orca, excuse me, it was a dolphin. And the water was like, you know, chest high. So the dolphin would swim around in this, high, in this house. And then to get into the bed, she'd have to like climb out of the water and into the bed. And the dolphin was a male dolphin, and it would get distracted because it was so hypersexual. Mm-hmm. So she would jerk off the dolphin. And when okay. they found out about it, they killed the research. They but should it, they should have upped the they should have the, the, the money. money. Yeah, <laughs> hire someone to jerk them off. They're more. They're, they're, they're just as freaking sexual as we are. Maybe even more so. But the only way it would participate in these activities <laughs> was if it got jerked off. Hand job. Hand job. So they they found out and they killed the science. Yeah, they're humping everything. Yeah, constantly. So without knowing. Any of that story prior to right now? Great story. In 1983, the sensory deprivation tank had become a little bit of a thing in Hollywood, mm. and you could go and rent a little time. We have one here. You have one here. But this is early days. Yeah. This is John Lilly days. Yeah. And out of nowhere, I decided to give my best friend at the time, Tree, 
some LSD. I said, let's take this LSD, go up to the apartment complex, and we're going to rent an hour in the tank, side by side. And he was like, okay, let's do it. So we took the LSD. We drove his car. We got in the tanks. I thought it was just going to be, ooh, trippy-dippy. Forget it. I was 10 billion miles away in outer space. <laughs> An astral plane experience. Yeah. Completely conscious, but no body. Just flying through the, the quiet vastness of space. It was almost more than we could handle. But those things are real. The elements combined. I, I don't do LSD anymore, but as a, as a young man, it made sense to me. The combination of the two things is what's really phenomenal because what Lily, he, he invented the sensory deprivation tank because he was trying to figure out a way to separate the mind from any of the physical input of the body. It works. It does work. Probably yeah. without LSD. Oh, it definitely does yeah. without LSD. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of the best ways to achieve a psychedelic state without any drugs. And also you can end it at any time. Just open the door. The door. And it's over. It's not like you have to come down from it. It just goes away. I had to come down on that day. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, bet. I had to get home. I bet you did. How'd you get home? It was tough. It was tough. The roads were disappearing under the car. <laughs> you have a tank here in the in the office or? It's in the gym. Okay. Yeah, it's right next door. I'll show it to you. Okay. It's awesome. It's from Los Angeles. There's a place called the Float Lab. Yeah. It's in Venice. It's the premier okay. float destination Ooh. on Earth. My friend Crash runs it. It's incredible. And uh, Crash is a mad scientist, and he's developed a sensory deprivation tank that's, like, super advanced with, like, ozone filtration, and the water filtration is, like, it, he, he gets these systems that are from, like, commercial water filtration for, like, like people's drinking water yeah. and shit. And he, he has this whole process of, and then it's a giant tank, too. It's mm. like, a, like a meat freezer. Size of this room? No, no, no. It's, like, like from this... From this okay. back to there. But it's like w w nice and wide where you could reach out, you touch this side and touch that side. So you sort of center yourself. How in about the water. just floating on water? Yeah. Pretty good. It's amazing. And there's a thousand pounds of Epsom salts in there. So it's you're very buoyant. You just like body temp. Like, body temp. You don't feel degrees, it. You don't feel it. It's incredible. Dark. Yeah. Pitch black. Yep. Yeah. And you just you just blend it in nothingness. And when the mind is detached from the physical sensations of the body, your brain becomes supercharged. And the way I always describe it is like, if we were having this conversation, there was someone next to us with a jackhammer, it'd be super distracting. Mm. We'd be like, let's get over there so mm -hmm. we can talk, we can't hear. But everything is input. The sensory input of your butt touching this chair, <laughs> right? Your, your hands touching this desk, the ear, the the earphones on the microphone in front of your face the physical space the the you and I exchanging social cues and communicating with sound like all that stuff is input well in the sensory deprivation tank there's none mm -hmm. zero and then with the water being the same temperature as your skin it feels like you're flying that was my experience it's amazing on acid it must be insane I've never done it on acid I, I, I think it just you know exacerbated the whole aspect of what you're talking about where there's mm. no body yeah your your brain is free to go wherever it likes i loved it to me it was pretty monumental i don't think i would repeat it in under those circumstances <laughs> but I'm well happy if you did, did you'd want more time one hour is like beam time's up anthony time like, was oh. up time was up. what do you mean yeah. time's up i'm on jupiter but now for me i get an even better feeling in the ocean 
Mm. The ocean is so full of life and peace and nature and excitement. That That's my my tank these days. Yeah, you were telling me about your love of surfing the other day. You love it, huh? I do because it gives me that that feeling, that freedom in the there's an energy. I'm late to the game, late to the party, late as you can be. Started in my 40s, tried a handful of times before that, made no sense. And then when I finally found it through Takuji Masuda, my teacher, my Japanese teacher. Um, I just that's what I want to do till the day I die. Wow. Just go sit out there waiting for a wave. If you think about the storms, 3,000 miles away, raging in the ocean, sending that, that wave of energy through the water, when it finally releases, when it hits the shallows, it's a rush. It's a drug. It's a high. It's a natural high where you're next to whales and dolphins and pelicans and eels and anemones and just looking back at the coast with a different point of view, no phone, no technology whatsoever, just water and a board. And that water's charged too. It's like there's life in that water. That water's not just water. That water's like a giant living super organism. Super organism. Sustains life. Ions and minerals. Yeah, yeah. energy to it. Yeah, a lot of my jujitsu friends love surfing because a lot of Brazilians surf. Mm, I've know, seen them out there. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> like they, a lot of them come from Rio, and a lot of surfers in Rio, yeah. and they come over to America, so they surf in America. All over the world, you yeah. see them in the water. Mm, yeah, they love it, and it's also it's a great exercise with jujitsu too because it's so balance based. There's so much going on. There's it's also a flow exercise. Mm -hmm. Jujitsu is very much about like flowing. Right. Scrambling. Yeah, there's a lot. You got to scramble with the wave. Yeah. You don't know what it's going to give you. Right. One wave jacks up more than another. Yeah. Have you ever done one of those wave pools, those crazy places that they develop? There's one out here in Waco. Yeah. That, like, develops waves, and apparently it's a great way to learn. It's, because a, it's you a good get way to, to ride, practice. You get to ride a lot of it's, different waves. It's not an organism. Right, right. But and it's the, a way to get used to surfing itself. If, if you want to train... And, and really work on your, your technique and get better it, rather than have this experience with nature, it's definitely the place to go. And also if you live in Texas. Mm. Right. So people that are competitive and in the leagues and want to go to the Olympics, it's the greatest invention ever because you can just work on turns, specific turns. I don't care about any of that. I just want to go paddle out into the unknown. I get it. Yeah. yeah. But I, I see the value. And yeah. they're po they're popping up everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere, right? There was one that just got shot down in Palm Springs. Shot down. Yeah, unfortunately, there's uh you know concern that it's gonna bring a bunch of fucking crazy hippies and their VW buses playing their so. loud, loud <laughs> rock and roll. I don't know why they shot it down. I mean, I think they might have shot it down also because of concern that it, it uses a lot of water. 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 Yeah. Yeah. But can't they just get that water from the ocean? You would think. It's not that far from the Sea of Cortez. There's plenty of water out there. They got to just get the salt out of the water. <laughs> they do. That's the problem. The they problem do. is not the lack of water. It's yeah. salt. Well, there are lots of uh, people working on that. Yeah, they should. Yeah. That would fix California like that. It's expensive right now. Fuck yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. Yeah, but why? Why? Why Why haven't you guys, you know, nuclear power desalination plants? Mm -hmm. You're welcome. 
Fix it. <laughs> Fix it. California should look like a fucking jungle. It should be beautiful and green wow. and lush. All yeah. that fucking sun. All that sun. If it, you're constantly spraying water over everything, it would be amazing. We have some lush. Cal- we have some lush. I just, Hoopa Valley, lush. Okay. Northern yeah. California. Yeah. yeah. I went to uh, Northern California a few years back with my family. We went to the rainforest the, uh, the, to see- The redwoods. Uh, all the redwoods. Oh. Oh. That's crazy. That's lush. Well, that's the thing about California, right? There's so many different ecosystems that are all combined. You have your desert. You know, you have like the rainy as fuck in Northern California. Mm-hmm. There's so much, you know, mountains are right there. The Mountains ocean's right there. see the whole deal. It's amazing. It is. Yeah, it's an amazing I, I, state. I can't pull myself away. I get it. I get it. Maybe. If I was going to live somewhere, I'd live where you live, though. I have Malibu's a, sp- I have a spare lot. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I was saving it for my son, but... Is it right next door to you? It is. I'll be your neighbor. Yeah. I would live in Malibu. If I was going to live anywhere in California, I think Malibu. Malibu's got a great vibe. There's also a thing about being next to the ocean that's very humbling. I think it's very good for people mm. to be sur- just confronted by inescapable beauty and power of mm-hmm, nature. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, oceans do. I need that. I need to be humbled daily. It's good for everybody. The mountains do the same thing. They do. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You know what the, the root of that word is? Which word? Humble? Humble. No. To be close to the ground, to be low to the ground. Oh, really? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Humble, like, people look at that as like a negative. Like, that's Oof. so good. It's so positive. You should be humble, man. You're in space. <laughs> <laughs> I go to um, the um, the Big Island. I try to go, like, you know, once every few years. But whenever I do go, we go to the Keck Observatory. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever been up there. Mauna Kea or whatever it is. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Big Ma- Mountain. Mauna Loa, maybe? Mauna Kea? Uh, whatever the mountain is that's up there, um, there's an observatory that you get yep. to. It's like many thousand feet above sea level. And if you can time it right, if you could visit during no moon, when the moon's not out, it's fucking spectacular. You're in space. You are, you literally like are on a spaceship with a glass dome over you. That's what it looks like. Like you have an un, unhindered view of the cosmos that I've never experienced before. I mean, I've been in the country when it's a, a, a beautiful dark night and you get to see all the stars and it looks amazing. But up there, you're through the clouds. Yeah. I think you're like 13. 11. Is 13. it 13? I think it's 13,000 feet above sea I could be wrong. I think it's 13. Super high up there. That's what it looks like. But that's literally <laughs> what it looks like, man. That's not an exaggeration. That's not, that's not a fake image. It's so incredible that I remember going there once, changed the way I feel about our relationship to space. Mm. Like forever. I could, I, and I also got so upset thinking, like, how fucked is it that that's not available to us just because we're so weird with light? We want everything mm. lit up at night. You know, we want the cities lit up and the, they want everything to be lit up. And when you get that light pollution, you miss the majesty of the cosmos, which is what I think humbled our ancestors. Mm. I think all of our ancestors were completely connected to the cosmos. If you look at, like, the Mayans... The Mayans, they designed all of their structures, their structures and their cities to represent the cosmos, to represent constellations. And so did the Egyptians. They were connected to the yes, cosmos. Yes, it was inescapable. They also didn't have television, radio, film, right. Uh, right. Te- you know, right. computers. 
So you had to deal with the elements, yeah, which is what made a lot of those people so smart, because from sun up to sundown, you're working on yep. your connection. Yeah, Da Vinci. Yeah, no distractions, none, just art, just art and yeah. invention and philosophy and mm -hmm. all day every day. Yeah, there's something about that view of the cosmos that I really wish more people <laughs> would get. I'm going to go check it out. I've never been up there. I've ridden my motorcycle all around that island many times, but I've never ridden up to the top of that mountain. It's wild. You got to go up there when, like, find out when the next dark night is. Mm -hmm. Like, what do they call it? Was it a dark? What is it called? It's like no moon at all. New moon? New moon. It's, uh, you could, you know, obviously you could look at it on a calendar, but if you get up there during that time, it's pretty fucking amazing. I mean, it really, it blew me away. My oldest daughter uh, was, I think she was like nine or 10 at the time. I think she was too young to appreciate it. But we were, when we were up there the last time, we were just like standing there staring at it. And I, I remember thinking, I'm never going to forget this. I'm never going to forget what this feels like. It just, it's just, I, I was like, oh, we're in <laughs> space. I don't think she'll forget it either. I hope not. I don't think she will. I think at that age you're still yeah. impressionable. I think so. Yeah. Shit, I'm impressionable now and I'm 55. <laughs> <laughs> but you might have gone through a, a patch where you were less impressionable. Hopefully. Yeah. My, my teenage son is like, what? <laughs> Cosmos. <laughs> Fuck out of here, bitch. I'm uh, on TikTok. Yeah, I'm going to Subway. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, teenage boys in particular, they're feeling their oats and their testosterone. Yes. Oh. Flowing through the Rebel. system. Rebels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you need that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a push and a pull. Does he have like a, a physical outlet to exp express his, his uh, physical energy? Not enough. Mm. I wish he had more. He is a baller. He plays the basketball. Well, that's good. Basketball is yeah. a great way. It is. Yeah. It is. I, I beg him to go surfing, but it's my thing in his mind. That's your thing, Dad. Mm, oh, he doesn't want to fuck with your thing. Doesn't want to fuck with my thing. He's but, be a but, rebel. but when he does paddle out, his eyes light up. Yeah. And he's a natural. Oh. He's a big, strong boy. So I'll just let him find it. Get him in jujitsu. I he was in jujitsu as a child. Yeah. As a little boy. Yeah. I had I had good teachers coming over, and he was uh, willing. Not one anymore. Thing, one thing about California, there's a lot of jujitsu out there. Good teachers. Oh my god. Yeah. I could steer you in the right place. Let me know. Could you? Oh yeah. You know you oh, know something yeah. about that? I know a lot of my good yeah. friends out there teach. I tried it three times in my life. Yeah. It hurt. <laughs> it freaking hurt. It's designed to hurt. It hurt. Like I liked it. Um but I was so competitive that I got home and I realized there was no skin on my feet uh, from the mats. Yeah. Like, I have no technique. Right. So I'm just trying to muscle it, you know, mm. dig in. I did all right. I fought some guys. It was fun. Hurt. The key to learning jiu-jitsu is to learn how to play. Like, the Gracies, they always they always have this phrase, like, uh, Hannah Gracie and Huron Gracie, they say, keep it playful. Right. And it's great advice. If you could really follow that advice, that's how you learn. Mm. Because you learn how to not muscle things. You learn how to only use technique and to have fun and just to, 
don't be crazy competitive. Know that you're going to get tapped out. Know that you're going to tap other people. It's going to be fine. Mm. But if you just always try to win every time, you're not going to learn. You're going to yeah. be too tense. You're going to be too, you're not going to open yourself up. So you're not going to take chances. So you're not going to learn as much. Yeah. It'll hinder you. You think you're doing good because you're not getting tapped, but really you're doing bad yeah. because you're not learning enough. That was my experience. It's normal. Most men do. I mean, uh, it's interesting when you see guys do it for like the first few times. Like you see the, the tension in them. They can't mm. breathe. They're so fucking tense and they get tired so quick. It's got to like, play. Yeah, you got to keep it playful. Relax. Yeah. I love watching it. I, I love the art. I love the chess match of all that. Fascinating. Can't get enough of it. What do you do physically other than surf? You're in really good shape. Um, very. I mean, not to be a jerk, but very little. Very, very you little. You have great genes. No, I, 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 I am a performer for a living, so that's two hours of. That's good a lot exercise. of aerobics. Uh, I like the bicycle very much. I get on a bike almost every day just to go ride next to the ocean and be humbled. Um, and surf is super limited because we don't always have waves. And and if it's like a show day or a rehearsal day, I can't go surf. Being a dad, you know, wrestling my son a bit, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I don't I don't have a a discipline that I go to, just engaging life physically always since I was a kid. But I don't really have a routine. I don't have a a beach workout or a weight thing or any of that. Nothing. I like some push ups here and there. A lot. I like the isometrics when I can get into that. But by the way, if you surf, if you do go to Hawaii for a month and surf every day, you're the strongest you've ever been in your life. Kayaking. Oh, yeah. Haven't done it for a while, but. Kayaking's hard. It's great on the shoulders. It's so good. You you get strong. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And, you know, surfing is also like just your core, your balance. And then, you know, like you're saying, getting in tone, just you're you're connected to Mother Earth in a just you an undeniable way, right? You're you're part of the ocean. You're floating instantly, around. Instantly, instantly. From the minute the board hits the water, you're in another world. Do you ever have any shark encounters? I wish. Really? Well, I mean, <laughs> not not a not a bad one. Not a bad one. I've never seen a shark in all my days of surfing. Have you ever seen the drone footage when they fly drones over Malibu? You see yeah. how many sharks oh, are out there? Thank goodness. If they're not there, we're screwed. It's true. Yeah. No, they're, the, they're more, the more I see, the better. Yeah. Um, you, Of course you have a little shark phobia. It's like a internal thing. We're born with it. You know, these are strong animals. But we're not on the menu. We've never been on the menu. They have a very specific understanding of what they want to do with their lives, and it's not us. When it is us, I believe it's a mistake. It's like a puppy, like going, "Who's this guy?" They they bite. Oh, I they're think like, they think I, we're seals, right? They don't. They no, know when they make a mistake. When they make a mistake. Yeah. 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 We we could, but that's a big mistake. But if you look at the numbers of sharks that kill people versus sharks that get killed by people. The number of sharks that get killed by people is something crazy. It's I think it's like 70 million a, a year. year. Yeah. Something really nuts. And they kill about five of us if, yeah. we're, if, if we're lucky. Yeah, it's like five or six on a yeah. bad year. And a bad like, year. What, what is it? Like, let's find it out. Google it. Oh, you got it ready? 
Oh, 100 million mm-hmm. sharks. Holy shit. We're killing ourselves when we kill them. 100 million. Wow. They, they are the great balance keepers of the sea. Sharks fin soup is what it is. Yeah, not happening. Wow, the fishing industry. That's crazy. Out of control. Now, how many um, people get killed by sharks every year? I say, I think it's, I don't think it's more than like 60 or 70. A year? Yeah. Killed way In less. In the world. Way less. Really? Way less. Is it? Give us how some numbers, please. Let's take, take a guess. What do you think it is? Less than 10. Less than 10. Killed. Wow. Bit, 70. Killed. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, let's no, see. there's a, there's always little, they're puppies. They want to see what you are. I just saw this number recently, that's why I know. It's like five. Five? Something like that. Yeah. Six to eight, it says. So Whoa, that could six be, to eight a year. That's It could crazy. be the, an, the animal that kills the least amount of people. For every hundred million sharks killed per year, about six to eight humans are killed by sharks. Wow. This is why I support Paul Watson. How many people get bit every year? Here you go, 73 shark bites. 73. Dude, you nailed it. Unprovoked. Pretty close, pretty close, pretty close. Nailed it. 39 provoked bites. Those people are assholes. 39 provoked (laughs) bites? Who are you fucking provoking a shark, man? You you ever see the, there's an Instagram page called Tourons of Yellowstone? No. Instead of morons, tourists, they're morons, Mm, Tourons mm, of Yellowstone. They they deserve what they get. Oh my God, do they deserve it? It's people like running up to Buffalo going, why? And then they get launched through the air. <laughs> That's 3,000 pounds of, of launch muscle. Fuck that. But some people just have zero respect for what nature is. They just, for some reason, they think they live in a movie where they're immune mm. to the, the natural well, if laws. Well, if, if you're on vacation, you should have immunity. <laughs> we were on vacation a few years back. We went to Montana and we went to Yellowstone and there were bison that were just roaming mm. around. They were only like 40 or 50 yards away. And when I saw them, all these people like got their cameras out and they were like closing in. And here it goes. Okay, this is elk. Is this the launch? It's going to chase this guy down. It's going to get fucked up. Yeah. Well, you don't ever want to fuck with an elk. Why would you? Oh, dude. Yeah. Don't. Oh, you got off like, easy. Get out of here, bitch. He got <laughs> that lucky. was a love tap. He got, that's a big ass elk too. Um, uh, what was I gonna say? The 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 bison that lived there, they they're in these like packs, and these people were taking photos of them. And uh, I was with my kids, and my kids they, they were young at the time, and they're like, "We want to see the buffalo. We want to see the buffalo." And we got close, and I'm like, "Okay, let me let me get like in front of you here. Let me like get in front." And if and I'm just thinking, okay. If shit, I'm just gonna grab the two of them like two fucking footballs and run behind a car if some shit goes down. Because at any moment now, you're only 50 yards away, the buffalo could just get pissed off and go, why the fuck are you taking my picture? And just take a wild run at them, especially if they're breeding, especially if they're in the rut. The, the one thing those people have going for them is that the bison doesn't really want to waste its time crushing you. Yes. It'll give you a warning. It might give you a... A smash. That's true. But they're like they want to go back to doing what they were doing. They're also super used to being around people because mm. people are around there all the time. I'm I'm gonna go toward the grizzly bear now. You gonna go towards him in the, in the conversation? Oh, just for a moment. Okay. I've I've heard a couple of your comments about the grizzly, and I just want to share my little experiences. I went kayaking in Alaska. Ooh. It was fantastic. Fjordal. This is some some years ago. Flea was part of the party. 
So this is like a glacial river? It's a river that goes between glaciers. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Stunning. And three grizzly bear encounters, all of which were lovely and mellow and harmless. Well, you know why, though? You're near a uh, food source. You're near salmon. Salmon. Yeah. And blueberries. By the way, they yeah. eat blueberries all day. All day. Their poop is blue. Yeah, isn't that With wild? bones coming out of it. No Salmon wild? bones. One time, I got ahead of the pack. I stopped at a little beach. It had a berm above my head, maybe 10 feet up. When the pack caught up with me, the kayakers in the water, they're waving and hollering. I'm like, it's beautiful. Isn't this beautiful? We're out here in the wild. There's a grizzly 10 feet above my head looking down at me <laughs> as I'm just parked on the beach. No problem. No beef. Yeah. Second time was a mother feeding her cubs mollusks and oysters mm. or whatever she could get. And a hiker said, there's a, a mama grizzly with her cubs eating around the corner. I was like, I got to go see. I cannot help myself. Really? I must go look at this beautiful animal. That's dangerous. I walked slowly, gently around the corner. She saw me. She sent her cubs up a tree. She's like, guys, go up. And she continued to eat as she kept one eye on me. No grief. No Because you didn't surprise her. No snarling. Just like, I see you. Hmm. I'm doing my thing. You stay there, I'll stay here. Mm. Then I brought my son up, and we went looking for grizzlies, and we found them. And one crossed a river straight towards us and just walked right past us. There's a distinction. What you're talking about is a a coastal brown bear. Yeah. The ones that are eating a lot of salmon. There's a difference between them and grizzlies. The grizzlies are the inland bears. Okay. The grizzly is a bear that you would encounter, say, in Montana, and they're much more likely to eat you. Is that right? Yeah. Because, eat you. Yeah. They're, they are eating animals. They're not eating fish because mm-hmm. there's, no, there's not much fish to right. eat there. I mean, they might catch a trout every now and then, but for the most part, they're eating moose and deer and mostly calves, too. That's what they, they prefer to that, eat. That's a good meal. It's a good meal. I don't think I'm a good meal. Uh, you definitely would be, and they definitely would eat you. If if you, you know, my woman got killed in Montana recently. She um, got killed in her tent. Mm-hmm. She was, uh, I forget what she was doing there, but she, she was in her tent, and this bear came into her tent and killed her. It does happen. It's more likely to happen with grizzlies than it is with brown bears, because br- brown bears are actually far larger, too. Because they have an almost endless supply of fish, especially in like Alaska. The biggest brown bears in the world used to be in California. Mm -hmm. California, um, even though our state flag has a grizzly bear on it, we don't have any grizzly bears in California because they killed them all. Misnomer? No. No, I'm saying the flag is a misnomer. No, no, no. They they used to have them. We had grizzlies? Oh, yeah. There's a place called Levesque, Levesque, California. I know we had the brown bear, but... Now with the distinction. Yeah. Well, it's the same bear. Same bear. The difference between them is one of them is on the coast and they're far larger. California had the biggest because California doesn't have a hibernation. It's not winter. There's no winter there. Like California, like Levesque, California. Where is that? It's uh, like on the way to Bakersfield up the five. And it's named after the last person in California to get killed by a grizzly bear. 
I think his name was Stephen Lebeck. You had it right the first time. It was, it's with a B, Lebeck. Lebeck. It's Peter Lebeck. Lebeck, yeah. yeah. What did I say, Lebeck? Yeah. Lebeck. That's the guy. So uh, he got killed by a bear in 1837, which now uh, Fort Tahone. So that is uh, up near Tahone Ranch. And so this guy was the last person killed by a bear, and then they, they basically eradicated brown eradicated. bears from California because so yeah. many, cause they were killing people because they were hunting them down mm-hmm. because they are predators. And they, you know, if they didn't have fish uh, and they found a person, they're like, I'll eat you. I would have to see it to believe it. See a meat a person? Well, I, I've, I've read, I've read, <laughs> I've read all the accounts of them eating people, and it always seems like they have a, a reason. Well, yeah, they're o- other than hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, in California, I think the issue was people were making their way to California, and they were a new food source. Mm. You know, they they weren't there originally, right? Maybe so people they were started just a showing nuisance. up. I'm sure they were a nuisance. Yeah. If you're a bear and you're trying to kill a deer. And then this asshole with a musket comes along and kills your deer. And then he tries to chase you off that deer. You're like, fuck get the fuck out of here. This is my deer you shot. Get out of here. How about the black bear? Black bear are more likely to try to kill people than grizzly bears are. When a, peop- when a person gets attacked by a grizzly bear, generally it's a surprise. Mm-hmm. When a person gets killed by a black bear, it's generally a bear that's trying to kill people. They get predatory bears. Yeah. They, they do occasionally hunt people. But it's rare. For the most part, when a black bear sees you, they just try to run away. They also think of people as a threat. Yeah, we got charged by a black bear in Ooh. in Alaska. Ooh, and it was it was as big as a brown bear. They're big, man. Oh no, this was a house running fast at us, and then it made a right turn. Try like to it, scare was, you. it was a bluff. It was a bluff charge. It was a bluff. Yeah. Thank God. Oof. It didn't know what to do. Bears are wild animals. I mean, they're beautiful too, though. They're so cool. I'm so glad they're real. We love them. Yeah. In, in, in Pasadena, Monrovia. Oh, yeah. They just come down from the hills and like jump in people's pools. Jump in pools, roam the streets, get a little snack out of the garbage. There's a great video from Pasadena. There's a guy who's on his phone and he goes and turns down this alley while he's on his phone. And as he's like looking at his phone, he looks up and there's a bear. He's like, fuck. And he, he runs away. But it's like a. Like a security camera footage yeah. of this fucking guy. <laughs> Every day. They're around. Yeah. Well, they come down from those mountains out there. Out I'm happy Pasadena. that we have them. Yeah. It makes me feel like we're still alive. Well, they're they're cool animals, man. They're cool. They're cool to see, you know. They're all cool to see. So are raccoons, you know. <laughs> they're cool to see, too. I always they love are. when I see raccoons. They have personality. Yeah. I posted a video the other day on my Instagram of a raccoon killing an iguana in Florida. And I didn't know that raccoons are like little savages. Mm-hmm. He's like like killing like a little bear. Yeah. Like biting down the head of this giant ass iguana that's wow. like the size of him. Huh. Killing it. Haven't seen that. Look at that. Savage. Isn't that wild? That's like you and the alligator the other day. <laughs> well, iguanas are uh, another weird invasive species in mm-hmm. Florida, and I guess these raccoons are adapting. And just decided to eat them. That's a that's a big challenge right there. Isn't that wild? That thing's as big as him. There's a, a lot of iguanas in Florida, apparently. I would imagine that's a tasty meal for him. They're, they apparently taste good. Yeah. Because there's a bunch of videos on YouTube of people hunting iguanas in Florida and then cooking them. You know, they cook them in like yeah. like a chicken dish. I would try that. I would. Why not? They're invasive. Yeah. They have to kill them. 
It's a good move. So do you cook yourself? No. Not at all? I, I will cook pancakes for my son. I will cook eggs for myself. And that's kind of my that's it? my limit. Yeah. I I see the, the attraction to people who love to be in the kitchen cutting and dicing and chopping and frying and it my son can cook. That's not for me. No. I I just never got into it. You? Yeah, yeah, I cook okay. all the time. Yeah. I, I I do see the beauty. I'm a I would be a good sous chef, but I just haven't mastered the the real chef thing. There's something cool about it. There's something exciting about cooking something and then eating a meal that you prepared yourself. It's very exciting. Yeah. No, I like to be in the kitchen when that's happening, but I prefer someone with a, a larger skill set to be at the helm. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, someone who knows what they're doing. You ever do any fishing? I, As a kid in Michigan, yes. It was kind of a go-to. Kind of have to. Yeah. If you're a kid in Michigan. Yeah, you got to fish. It's, it's the, <laughs> the rite of passage. But now I have the same feeling about, about fish, I yeah. just hate taking them. I love eating fish. I it's get such it. a wild animal. It's so good, so satisfying. But when I see them pulling, getting pulled out of the ocean, I'm like, ugh. Right. I just ruined this dude's day completely. That's true. Especially the mahi mahi, mm. which are flaming blue, Beautiful. yellow, and then the minute they come out, they lose all their color. They're just like, ah, game's over. <laughs> But I would, I would. I, that's like an animal that I have a slightly easier time. End, I was in ending. Uh, Mexico with my wife, and we went fishing. We caught mahi mahi, and we cooked them, like literally two hours after we caught them. Mm -hmm. Cooked them, caught them, got them to shore. Two hours later, we're eating them, and it was like, holy shit, is this good? Fish in particular, there's something about like. It, cooking them right when you catch them that makes them exponentially better. Mm -hmm. They're so good. It's like I almost feel like you're missing something if you buy like commercially caught. You're missing like the the, the what the fish has to offer you. Mm -hmm. You're not getting all of it. It's almost. I mean, it's still great. Mahi mahi is great no matter what. But man, is it, it's not as good. Like right out of the water, it's the best. I did that with my uncle in the Bahamas in the early 70s. Really? He was that guy. He was a, a master surgeon. So he spent all day in the hospital with open bodies trying to heal them. And then we would take a tiny little sailboat to the Bahamas and fish and swim and live. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a cool experience that must have been. It was. He was a badass. He was a big barrel-chested badass. And... um not afraid of sharks. I had seen Jaws. <laughs> Show me a shark this big, and I'm just running over the top of the water to escape. And we were on the island of Bimini, which is just a little sliver of an island out in the Atlantic. Crystal clear water. And one day a hurricane was coming. And his job was to take his tiny motorboat and pull a huge sailboat out of the harbor so that it could get to the ocean before the hurricane arrived because that sailboat needed to get to Florida. Mm. It's raining, the seas are high, and he's in a small motorboat, and he's going to pull with a rope the boat out of the harbor. And I was like, I'm coming. He's like, you are not coming, 11-year-old Tony. 
It's like, no, I'm coming on this trip. I'm going to help. So my aunt sanctioned little Tony getting on the boat. <clears throat> and we pulled this racing sailboat out of the harbor into the ocean, which is raging with massive waves. And we got a wave in the, uh, coming up over our bow, which sent us vertical. And the sailboat got a wave pushing its nose down, which pulled our stern underwater. Oh, shit. And it was my time to go moment. I was like, God, whoever you are, whatever you are, I feel a little bit young to be checking out right now. I mean, is, <laughs> is this what you had in mind, honestly? And as I'm having my time to leave this earth moment, my uncle grabbed a machete and went underwater and cut that rope. And we popped out like a cork. Whoa. He floored the engine, which sent most of the water out of the boat, and everything was fine. Wow, he knew his shit. He knew his shit, but this is the guy that also taught me how to like pull big fish out of the ocean and, in theory, not be afraid of sharks. That must have been an amazing experience to be 11 and have that happen. So he had been to war. He had done the whole thing. And as he grew older, he told that story and says, that was the scariest thing that's ever happened to me in, in all my days. I wouldn't tell this to my nephew, but it was curtains. We were done. Whoa. Chuck. Wow. Yeah. My parents lived on a sailboat for a couple of years. Right after they retired. That's they, ballsy. Yeah, they were like, they didn't have a lot of experience on boats either. They just decided to learn how to sail, and they lived in the Bahamas. They lived okay. in the Florida Keys. They lived, they just decided, to live, they even just fucking drifted around in that sailboat went to different places you that's ever think about it for... no <laughs> <laughs> fuck that that's not me man I, I i enjoy fishing i enjoy being on the water i love the ocean but uh, if i was going to live somewhere wild i would live in the mountains for sure mm. for sure you ever think about just taking that one time circumnavigation of the globe in a sailboat nope no nope why Fuck that. It's just, it's not, it's just not attractive to me. I respect it. I appreciate it. It's beautiful. But to be contained on a small wooden vessel bouncing around at the mercy of the waves and mm. the way the moon mercy. affects the tides and fuck off. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, a lot of people would say fuck off about the mountains too. I mean, oh, I don't, I'm mountains. not judging. Yeah. Just for me, that's the vibe that I, I love. I love this. Ready? Nothing. Mm. That silence that you get in the mountains when you're like sitting on top of a like a peak and you're overlooking these valleys and you don't hear shit except maybe a bird or you know a snap of a branch because an mm. animal's running through. That to me is the most centering and the most peaceful. And it's just like something that like there's a vibration of being in the wilderness. That puts me at ease. I just like it. Just things make sense when I'm up there. That I like. Yeah, I love that too. Yeah, the, it's the also, ocean can eat shit. Well, the ocean can go fuck off. <laughs> when it, when it comes to being in the middle of the ocean, I, I share this sentiment. Yes. On the edges, I'll take it all. Oh, day. the edges are gorgeous. I'm I'm only kidding. I love it. What's I love. Like I said, if I was gonna live in California, I would live in Malibu. I I we um. 
when uh, we were getting our kitchen fixed at one point in time, so we could either like stay in our house or we decided to rent a house. So we decided like, oh, I've never lived on the water. Let's rent a house on the water. So we rented a house in Malibu, and like in the morning, I would eat breakfast, and it was like right there on the yeah. water. So the water's like right. It's incredible. That's good. I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Similar to the mountain feeling. Yeah. Yeah. What's your go-to mountain range? Wow, I don't know, man. I love them all. Yeah. I was just in, I was just in the Tachapi Mountains uh, last week in uh, California. Okay. Which is gorgeous. The Wasatch in Utah is gorgeous. I love the Rockies and Colorado. I just, I just love that. When you're in unspoiled wilderness, there's just a vibe to it. When you realize that these animals are out there just doing what they've done for thousands of years before humans ever even came around. There's something about that that's just it's very, very, very appealing to me. It's just, gor- it's just gorgeous to be around. The view of it, I don't think there's a better natural art mm. in the world than mountains. It's good. Flea and I discovered it at 16. We were city boys. We, d- we didn't know from wilderness, really. Michigan, very flat. And there was a popular T-shirt that said, Go Climb a Rock. And then on the back of the shirt, it said Yosemite. I was like, Yosemite, what is this Yosemite thing? And when we were 16, I said, Flea, let's get on a Greyhound bus and go see what Yosemite is all about. (laughs) So we had like shopping bags of food, canned food, and a little nylon backpack with a blanket. And we took a Greyhound up to Yosemite. Wow. And took a gnarly trail. Like we went up Yosemite Falls and into the backcountry carrying sacks of food because we didn't know any better. So this is the 70s. Yeah, 78 maybe. But it was a game changer. We connected. We connected with that space and swam in rivers and made campfires and cooked food and saw those cosmos and maybe saw a UFO or two. (laughs) 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 And we've been back ever since. It was was a moment where we, we tapped into something. That's awesome. And we wrote a song, an acapella song, which we hadn't been doing up to that point together. When did you guys first start making music together? In 1983, uh, we had this bizarre and beautiful friend from Arkansas, gay and black and fashionable and very much on the scene of L.A. clubs. And, uh, and, and Flea and Hillel and Jack Irons and Alan Johannes had all been playing in like new wave rock bands. But not me. I go, I support, I dance, I have fun. But this character from Arkansas, who was a real misfit and ahead of his time, said, why don't you let Anthony be in the band? And they looked at him like, because he's not a musician? I don't know. He, why would we tell Anthony to be in the band? Let him sing one song. And so they were like, all right, Anthony, go write some words, sing a song. And we did that, and it was so explosive and so chemically correct, the the new guys together, that we we couldn't stop. We just never stopped. That was just the beginning of a 40-year run. And so you didn't have any inclination? You didn't have any aspiration? This one guy saying that to you? To them, like them. he said, let that let Anthony sing a song. And I was so like, what? you what's, didn't discuss what's going on over there. 
He didn't. He didn't run it by you first. No, no. But wow. he knew that. He knew that I love to write poetry, oh. and dance, and just emote. Did you have an idea what you wanted to do with your life? No. <laughs> no. I started off thinking I would be an actor or a novelist. And then I thought maybe crime would work out. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of crime? Whatever was easy. But my father had kind of inserted enough art into my childhood with music and visual arts and just ideas that, that I was built of this stuff. I was built of words and sound and... And if you if you trace a musician's uh, history back to when they're kids, it's never an accident that they ended up doing that for a living. Like if you look at Chad Smith, our drummer, one of the greatest drummers to ever walk the earth today. He's a phenom. But he was a little stoner living in the suburbs of Michigan who all he wanted to do was listen to music and be a part of music. But he was also a natural-born athlete. He was so coordinated pick up a golf club, boom, go on the ice, play hockey, boom. He was just genetically coordinated. And then he played in 20 different rock bands as a kid, just honing and woodshedding and figuring it out until we met him when he was like in his 20s and hired him. If you look at Flea, broken home, but his stepdad was a jazz bass player who would have jam sessions in the house all day, every day. So there's a little boy just watching these jazz bands, and then he got a trumpet, and he realized that if I play trumpet, people are going to notice me. So the little kid who wasn't getting much attention in this adult world of a broken home, suddenly people are paying attention and listening, and he had the discipline and the intellect. John Frusciante, his great-grandfather, immigrant from Italy, master musician, his father, Juilliard pianist. So from the time he's a kid, this music, like, let's see what you got. And then his psychosis and way of dealing with the world was, I'm just going to sit and play for 10 hours a day. So it's never an accident that these people end up where they end up. It's a lifetime of just everything working out so that that's your life. So you had no aspirations of singing. This guy tells the band, let him sing a song. Mm -hmm. You sing it, and then was it immediately? Immediate. It was too much fun. And the club owner, we played one song in a club. And Solomon Burke, this French guy who had started a club in Hollywood, charged the bandstand and said, will you boys come back next week? Maybe play two songs. We're like, we'll see you next week. And we went home and we wrote a song and we came back next week. And it just never stopped. Wow. And you were 21? Yep. 21, homeless, sleeping in graveyards, backyards, park benches, Back seats of cars, chaise lounges. But I now had a direction. And you just dive right in? Yeah, it stuck. It was, it was, it's what I wanted to do from that point forward. Started carrying around notebooks and just writing and writing and figuring it out and listening more and more carefully to what these guys were playing, 
where did I fit into this rhythmically, melodically? Learning curve. Did you take any music lessons? At the time, no. But then uh, as the years went by, I realized I had to train my voice to just to sustain. And I also wanted to do different things with my voice. So I found some teachers, uh, old school opera vocal coach guys and girls, which taught me a lot and made it a lot more fun and gave me a bigger playing field. But really it's just about being present, being emotional and listening to what's happening. So what is the creative process like when you guys make a song? Do, you, do they have the music first? Do you have the lyrics first? Is it a combination of the two? Zero rules. Zero rules. Zero rules, and it happens every which way, and it could be anything. Like, as the Red Hot Chili Peppers don't have a, oh, it's got to sound like this or it's got to sound like that. It's got to be hard or it's got to be, it could be anything. It could be funky. It could be bluesy. It could be jazzy. It could be hip-hop. It could be folk. We'll play anything. Anything that we feel like playing, which is also a blessing because less boxed in. But often John and Flea will stay home and go to their garage or their room or whatever and just play until they have something, a tidbit, a, a chord progression, a rhythm, a, a melody, because that's what they like to do for hours, just play. And they'll come to band practice and they'll say, well, what do you think about this? I'll be like, I love that and I think I know what to do with that. And it starts there. And Chad knows what to do and, and we just build together. Or I'll come in and I'll say, I have these words, they're looking for a home, what do you think? And, uh, and John is exquisite at listening to what I'm doing and you know, I kind of feel like I'm surrounded by geniuses and I'm a little bit of the idiot, but he's good at deciphering the idiot's genius. So he listens to me and he's like, I know what to put with that. And then it just grows. And what is your writing process like? Do you write alone? Do you like to sit alone? Do you write with them around you? Like, how do you write? I, I like to write alone, but I'm not afraid to write in a crowded room if, if it's flowing. Um... I think the the number one thing is just to write. If you go sit down and listen to music and get a piece of paper and a pencil or however you write, something's going to happen. Something always happens. Sometimes it's better than others, but if you make that time to write, something's going to happen. Mm. Um, or if you have an idea, no matter where you are, on a plane, riding a bike, sound asleep, you better get the fuck up and put that idea down because that that could be it. If it if it came to you, it means something. So yeah, I like to sit on my back porch with a boom box and play today's rehearsal and just sit there and write. And uh and I owe some of that to my father, who kind of implanted that in me. The writing, the creativity, you know, understanding words. But probably the most powerful thing that you could ever write is, is something that's honest. So playful is fun, intellectual is fun, interesting is fun, but when you crack into that emotional thing where it hurts or it 
just one of those moments of honesty that's perhaps the most valuable. That's the kind of music I think that resonates with people the most. I mean, people love all kinds of music, right? But there's something about when you know that an artist is saying something that comes from like the deepest part of their being. Like there's like some reality to what they're singing about. It at least represents some reality of what they're singing about that you know it's a part of them mm-hmm. that it, it, it excites people so much because you're sharing something. You're sharing like a part of your soul. You're sharing a part of your life experience. You're sharing a part of your personality and you're doing so through your writing. You're doing so through your singing. It resonates. We're, we're all connected. Yeah. <laughs> and when people are like, I know that feeling. Mm. I want to experience this guy's version of that feeling. I'm connected to that. The hardest of the hard, the gangsters of L.A. I'll be riding down the Sunset Boulevard, and I'll hear under the bridge coming out of a lowrider, and it is the toughest, scariest, most you know, loked-out-looking dudes just melting with under the bridge. Mm. I'm like, okay. That was that was a day well spent in you know, writing that song. Do you always close with that song, or do you guys mix up? Uh, we mix it up, and but yeah, it's a meaningful tune. It has stood the test of time. When you guys closed with it the other night, I was like, yeah, you kind of have to. Uh, I owe a lot of that to Rick Rubin, that song. <coughs> He's amazing, isn't he? He's all right. What a trip. He's all right. <laughs> such an unusual for person. a beginner he's pretty good <laughs> so we were writing uh blood sugar sex magic yeah and i was at the time we would just spend our days together he was a lot less busy he wasn't a dad and we would just hang all day what are you working on show, show me the songs you're writing because he's producing our record and i showed him all my you know sexy songs heavy funky songs He's like, okay, that's good. We can work on that. He's like, anything else in the book? Just a poem that really isn't a song. I mean, it has a melody, but I don't think it's for us. Well, let me hear it. I was like, eh, it's kind of embarrassing. It's a little sentimental. Love to hear it. It was Rick, because Rick knows, like, there's no rules. You want the thing that's not expected. So I sang him under the bridge, and he was like, that's your best song. I was like, eh, it's just a poem. Bring it into the boys. Show them the song. So without Rick's push, you know, for the, the counterintuitive, sensitive guy song, we might have never had a chance to write that. There's some people in the world that are magic. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love Rick, and he is magic. He's a magic person. Yeah. he He has, like, when you're talking to him, like, he has a sense of ignoring the bullshit and just tuning into the magic. It's a very, and you could tell when you talk to him, it's not, it's not nonsense. It's like a science almost. It's like an understanding of what it is. And he just follows that, that frequency. He just mm-hmm. fo- he chases it down. Yeah. He's tuned into that. Yeah. He's very good at that. He's another person. If you look at his origins, it's no accident that he ended up being the person that he is. Single child out in the, the suburbs of New York City, I think, Long Beach, Long Island. 
and he had an aunt. Very cerebral boy, already just like very smart kid. But living a boring, culture-free life of the island. And he had an aunt who lived in Manhattan who loved her nephew. And every weekend or every other weekend, whatever, he would go spend with her. And she was cultured. She was like, we're going to the opera. We're going to the symphony. We're going to the museum. We're going to go see all this different stuff. And Rick was amazed by the music and the art and the culture that she was sharing with him that he wasn't getting in his home life. And he just started tapping into the magic and dedicating himself in a way that led to him starting his record company when he was in the NYU dorms. But it wasn't an accident. Like He got fed the raw materials as a kid, and it opened up his dream. And I think probably also being a single kid, you're not influenced by your siblings either. So you have a chance to sort of be who you actually are. Less influence. He would get on a bus and go... 200 miles to see James Brown when James Brown was still on tour by himself. And he would get there five hours early. And they were like, you got to wait in the parking lot because doors don't open for five hours. As a kid by himself to go see James Brown, I was like, yeah, you're qualified. Just out of appreciation, not even thinking there was a career involved in that. That's what's so crazy about his story. Yeah. There was no career to be that guy. Nope. No, he invented a career. Yeah. There was, there was no, there was no light, there was no future in hip hop. No, people looked down upon it. They thought it wasn't even music. Yes, call us back when you have some music. They would say. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. He was telling me the whole story of the connection between Aerosmith and Run DMC mm-hmm. about people like, what the fuck are you doing? You're like ruining Aerosmith. And then the hip-hop people are like, what the fuck are you doing? You're putting hip-hop together with rock? What the fuck is that? And then meanwhile, it's like, oh, my God, you just united two worlds. Yeah. You united two worlds and opened up a whole new realm of possibility for mm. music. And you just did it by following magic. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I met him in maybe 1985, and we were flailing. I was lost in a retarded sea of drug addiction. Mm. Just too how did, thin to how win. did that start? Huh? How did that start? I'll tell you, but first I got to okay. share the little Rick yeah. tidbit. So I was basically a junkie, but still showing up to work from time to time, which was the basement of the EMI uh, studios on Sunset Boulevard. They gave us a little basement to rehearse in. They had signed us. But we were going nowhere very slowly. Couldn't get out of our own way. And... But we were still making a buzz. There was still something exciting about us that caught people's attention. And it caught Rick Rubin's attention. And he was with the Beastie Boys. And they were exploding with success and and greatness, writing incredible music. And so Rick brought the Beastie Boys to our dingy little recording or rehearsal spot. And he sat there and we rehearsed while they watched. They're in these little dirty couches watching us. And we went through our songs. And Rick stood up and said, we're going to go now. And I was like, okay, do we, do we talk again? What's going on? We'll get back to you. Didn't see him for years. Years and years and years went by. 
Eventually, I got clean, and he came back and said, let's make a record. But I said, what happened that day? You, you came, and we played, and you disappeared, and I never talked to you again. And he's like, I thought somebody was going to get murdered in that rehearsal space. I thought somebody was going to die. I had to leave. That's how dark we had become. That's how dark I had become, is he was afraid someone was going to die, and it was time to leave. Murdered. That's what he said. He's like, you guys were terrifying. You were scary. It felt like somebody was going to die. We had to go. When you look back on those times, do you understand how he thought that? Not exactly, but everybody has their own perception, and, and, and there was darkness in the room. When you're following that lifestyle, there's definitely, a instead of a magical energy, there's a very discernible yeah dark energy yeah but i didn't realize it was that dangerous <laughs> he was scared how did you get on the road the drug road well i think the road was already in me from birth uh, a combination of predisposed to addiction physically and then emotionally I developed the tendencies that I, I needed to squash some of the noise. Spiritually a little depleted. <clears throat> so I started smoking weed and loved it. It was a very fun and at the time subversive thing to be a part of. Like today it's pretty damn common. But then it was very outlaw as a, as a young teenage boy. <clears throat> and years went by and there was no problem. And then I started introducing narcotics at a pretty young age and really had nothing to say about it anymore. I was like the caboose of a train, just going wherever the hell that train said to go. Mm. It was interesting and it was exciting, but it was also painful as hell. It was just like, in the end, this is a life of suffering. Um, fortunately, you know, my... My destiny was meant to survive that. And, um, you know, it isn't really events or advice or anything that gives you the window to step out of that, but it's, it's a little gift from the cosmos that just makes you look at yourself and say, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you an opportunity to put in the work to get better if, if you so choose. If not, carry on. What was the narcotic of choice? Of choice, I would have to say uh, the combination of heroin and cocaine was at that moment, at that point in time. Do you remember what you started with? Of those two? Yeah. Uh, I probably did the cocaine shortly before the heroin, but right around the same time, very young age. And did you do it because it was the thing that people around you did? Was it just exciting? Was it rebellious? Like, what was it? Was it a part of rock and roll? It had nothing to do with rock and roll or trying to impress or put on a pretense. It, it was happening around me in my world. It was exciting and dangerous. Like, ev everyone's afraid of that. You know, I think I'll do that thing that mm. just the word scares people. But it was also a, a way of checking out. Like in the, in the same way that, you know, one person will sit down in a bar and have some beers and just not stop. 
yeah. you know, that allergic reaction to, yeah. to the sensation of finding your medicine. Right. I had that reaction. Like, I, I felt whole by putting these things in me until I had to pay the toll. You know, it's like you steal from Peter, you got to pay Paul the next day, and it's a terrible paycheck to write. <sighs> terrible paycheck to write. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it was It was finding the thing that, uh, that I thought was going to make me well, but really it was just killing me. And how long were you on that road for? Well, I think I was 27 the first time that I was able to put in the work and get sober. And then I went to my young 30s and kind of forgot where I came from and forgot the, the process of maintaining. It's like you get physically fit. It's not going to be for life. You got to yeah. show up. Yeah. Or anything else, you know, your craft, your craft. Yeah. You you put it down, it fades. So I had put down the craft of sobriety and it opened an opportunity. And I ended up going back out there for a bunch of years, like 5 years, which was even worse cuz now I knew that there was a solution and I was just ignoring it. Mm. So there was nothing fun about it and then the window came back and I had another chance to uh commit to sobriety and I did and that was 21 years ago. How'd you get sober the first time? Um, so in a way my, my best friend died which did not instigate sobriety. Did he die from drugs? He did. Um, but it definitely destroyed me emotionally but I, I continued to use after he died. And then I got to the point where I could not turn off the noise with drugs and alcohol, literally flooding my body with the substance and still wide awake. So I was not getting the desired effect. I was like, this is terrible. Like, <laughs> I'm putting all this poison in me and I'm still here. And uh, I called up a friend and rehabs were not a thing at that time. I called up a sober friend and I was like, what are those rehab things? I got to find one. He's like, the only one I know of is very expensive, 10 grand, which in the 80s for a struggling musician was a lot. I was like, I have 10 grand. That's exactly how much money I have. And I spent it. I gave my last 10 grand, my only 10 grand ever, to a rehab. And I went and I checked in. And uh, there was 30 dope fiends in the room of all walks of life, but all with a common sickness. And the counselor said, I'm looking at 30 of you, and stats-wise, one of you is going to get sober out of here. Wow. And I was like, get out the way, because I'm taking that spot. I was such a little... Competitive. Com yeah, it's an egomaniac. You yeah, know, just like, right. I am taking that... Right. Please, you know, the rest of you can go back to where you came from. Only one out of 30. That's what he said to us. And there was like a guy from the SWAT team. There was professional athlete. There was just every variety of person in there. I was like, I'll take it. But then I realized there's a process to it and there's a, a being of service aspect to it and there's a becoming humble aspect to it all. And that was the beginning of me taking many years to go from being a complete idiot to only a partial idiot. <laughs> 
So how long is this rehab for? That was a month. And uh, and it stuck for a long time. So you get out. Yep. Fully clean. Did they try to get you to replace that habit with something positive, some sort of a positive habit? So I've heard that that uh, advice before to yeah. get people to try like try jogging, do yoga, no. do something you get addicted to. It, it was it was more of a. There are lots of things you have to change about the way you're doing business with people in the world, but it's not really a replacement with a, an activity. Prayer and meditation was a part of it, something I had never considered before, getting still and quiet and connecting. Being of service was a part of it. Taking a look at yourself was a part of it. Admitting your faults was a part of it. Making amends was a part of it. <clears throat> and being present for the next person who needs that help was a part of it. So once you kind of get the the gist and the gift and the experience of sobriety, when some new bastard shows up who is lost, you have to show up. Because really the language of one addict talking to another is kind of where the magic happens, as it does when you associate with somebody who only can relate to the a very specific experience that you've had. Mm. You could talk all day long to a normie, and they're like, why don't you just put it down? I wish I could. It just doesn't work like that. So, I've never been addicted to a drug before. Mm -hmm. But is it is it like it's it's not necessarily physical, right? Because once you get the physical out of your system, the mental pull is still there, right? It is physical because it's like an allergy. So yeah, you could get rid of the physical addiction. But then the minute you take that substance, whatever your addiction is, you react to it differently than a normal person. So that's the physical. Like a, a person who's drinking booze, the chemistry is physically different as it hits your bloodstream. So you mean like you're naturally more physically addicted? Yes. And you don't think that has to do with your childhood or with it, trauma? That's part of it. It's part of it. That's part of it. So that's what naturally makes you more physically addicted? No. No. So that is the the emotion, emotional and or spiritual element. But the study that they do on people, the way they process alcohol is different. The, right. al the alcoholic. So there's a genetic variable as well. Yes, yeah. there's a genetic variable. <clears throat> so was what alcohol, was that the thing that got you off the wagon again? No. Uh Painkillers from a, from a, from a doctor visit, and by the way, had I been fit with my recovery, it wouldn't have been an issue. Did you have a surgery or something like I that? I did. I had a, a wicked four uh, tooth surgery, mm. and and I went in there without my tools or my connection to where I'd come from. I had just kind of forgotten about it. Like I'm good. I'll live and die sober. But I stopped doing the work. And so they give you some sort of a painkiller because of your teeth? I was done. And you were right back. Done. And I've since had all kinds of surgeries. No issue. And did they put you on painkillers with the other surgeries as well? Yes. Yeah? yeah. But, you're well, cool. like, but yeah. you understand it now. Yeah, well, I went in there like, you know, talking to people before I went in mm -hmm. and just 
Yeah, it's it's exercise. Yeah, um, my friend Artie Lang, um, he had his uh, he had some really heavy bouts with uh, drug addiction, and um, he he had his nose collapse for a bunch of different reasons. One, because he he snorted pills. Uh, that were mixed with glass mm-hmm. because someone was crushing the pills up with mm-hmm. like a salt shaker mm-hmm. and it had glass in it. it. Cut his nose up. It got infected, and he also got punched out by some guy who was an enforcer for a dealer or a bookie who he owed money to. And so his nose is collapsed, and he was going to get it fixed, but he can't because he's like, I can't take the risk of getting back mm-hmm. on the pain pillar, painkillers. That uh, that's a a choice I understand. Like the the payment for going back to where it came from is too too great. Yeah. <clears throat> there are people who, who can do it. Like they go in there with a support. Right. With tools. With tools and with the connection and and doing all of the things that you have to do to be well. But I understand his fear. Yeah. Like to not ever want to go back to where he came from is a powerful thing it was so hard for him to get sober and last time i talked to him we did a podcast together and he was so alive he was so sober and he was so funny and his fucking stories were so good <laughs> and he was like i'm not gonna do it i'm not i'm not gonna take that fucking chance i'd rather have a flat nose yeah i'm like okay yeah. I, I get it man i'll take the flat I fucking nose. get it yep yeah oddly enough <clears throat> a lot of the addicts and alcoholics i know are the most interesting and oh my god it's it kind of comes yeah. with the territory. Some of my favorite funny people, either used to be addicts or are addicts. Yeah, Lenny yeah. Bruce. Oh yeah, Lenny Bruce. Yeah, smart Richard guy. Richard Pryor. Rich. Sam Kinison. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever meet Richard? I met Richard. You met Richard. Yeah. I actually um, worked with Richard for five weeks in a row at the comedy store before oh, he died. Damn. Yeah. Wheelchair. Yeah, they had to carry him to the stage, and uh, he would. They would crank up the microphone, and uh, he was really sick at the time. Yeah, he was on his way out, and I was uh, 27. I was, uh, you know, just getting to Hollywood, just recently a paid regular at the Comedy Store. I had no business being on stage with Richard Pryor, mm. and uh, he uh, he would go on, and then I'd go on after him. Every night. Who has business being on stage with Richard Pryor? <laughs> Nobody, right? He uh, he was a reason why I even understood what comedy was. When I was 15 years old, my parents took me to see Live on the Sunset Strip uh, in the movie theater. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget. Because I had seen a bunch of great movies like Stripes and, you know, fucking all these funny, funny, funny movies. I had never laughed so hard as I was laughing at this guy who was just talking. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't imagine that this was, like, how is this happening? Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in the audience, and I remember looking around while I was laughing, and people are falling out of their chairs. They're throwing their arms up in the air. They, they couldn't breathe. And I was like, this is amazing. All this guy's doing is talking. And that planted the seed in my mind about what stand-up comedy is. I never considered doing it at the time. I was just like, this is incredible. And I became, like, this giant fan of stand-up comedy from that moment and then i started listening to his old albums and i started listening to all sorts of different like cheech and chong and bill cosby and all these different like stand-up comedy albums good records oh my god and that you know was 
sort of like the beginning of my obsession with the art of stand-up comedy was that one time seeing him in the movie theater when I was a 15-year-old kid. So and, and for me you, to be sharing the stage with him 12 years later yeah. was nuts. Just nuts. Was he still funny? Unfortunately, no. 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 He was, uh, it was sad. It was sad. And the audience was super bummed out. And so I would have to like kind of like revive the crowd as best I could, you know, because he was gone. Yeah. He, he was, he was medicated and he was mm -hmm. also drinking. So mm -hmm. he was drinking mm -hmm. and he was medicated and they'd have to crank the microphone. Like, so he would go on stage, you'd hear, because the mic was just cranked because yeah. his voice was so so soft and a way he kind of earned the right to go out like that oh yeah <clears throat> i mean oh yeah Nobody five weeks complained. of unfunny richard yeah i'll take it i'm sure he had his moments you know there was some moments where he got some laughs but for the most part you would go on stage afterwards and people would look they would look at me like this like fuck like what did we just say they were coming to see Richard Pryor, their yeah. hero in comedy, and they got to see a great artist at the end of his line, you know? Yeah. My jam with Richard was everything but Long Beach. Oh, yeah. That's my jam. Oh, my God. That was when that guy came up to take a picture at the beginning of the show. He was like, hey, motherfucker, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, people are coming to their seats as he's on stage. Yeah. Like, he's on stage and people are – he's filming his comedy yes. special as people are walking in and sitting down. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Priceless. Oh, my God. And it's a great special, too. Yep. It's a fucking classic special. That's a good one. I performed in that very same place, and mm. that's all I could think of. It was a man, Richard Pryor. He he did a special here, and there's only a few. He only has a few specials. You know, it's a very small handful. Some of the some of the great ones are there's cassettes that are available that you can now get on YouTube of him performing at Red Fox Comedy Club. Red Fox had a comedy club in Los Angeles. Sold out. Yeah, called sold out. And he he performed there. I think it was just called Red Fox Comedy Club, wasn't it? Maybe, it maybe may, no, he, I think he's had a few, yeah. and I think Red Fox turned into sold out. But I bought the cassettes at a gas station. I was at like a truck stop one place, and they I had cassettes. That. And I was like, what is this? And they were just like raw recordings. Mm -hmm. You could hear the clink of ice cubes in the glass, and you could hear people in the crowd, and he was just riffing and talking shit, and it was amazing. And so, I mean, some of his great work is not on video. Some of his great work is really um, like cassettes. Do you have those cassettes? Oh, yeah. You yeah, have those yeah, cassettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're taking got, good care of I've those cassettes? I've got a lot of his stuff. Did you, did, a lot of his old did you digitize stuff. those cassettes? Well, I've got um, digital copies of some of them. You can still buy a lot of them. You can still buy a lot of them online, too, which is great. You know, that's a beautiful thing about today. Like, someone can tell you about a great song or a great album. And you can just go on your phone and get it. Yes. Like no, that. I appreciate that. I I'll appreciate that. that. So we have a song. We wrote 50-some-odd songs during the pandemic. Oh, we wow. 50? Yeah. It, it was fun. It was easy. It was, it was magic. It was when the world shuts down and you, and you have your, your gang together to write. It was a special moment. But one of the songs which did not make it onto either of our double records, is called The Comedy Store. Oh. And I knew it wasn't the most like original title or anything like that, but I have my connection to comedy, and John Frusciante has a 
deep love for stand-up comedy. He, he re-inspired my love for stand-up comedy when I met him in the late 80s. And so the, com the Comedy Store song <clears throat> is kind of an ode to stand-up and, and the joy of like, you know, sneaking in the back door of a club and catching a set and all these different little Hollywood references. But the chorus spoke to Dave Chappelle, who I love and admire. As a human being, we're all full of everything. But to me, he is, you know, kind of the, the reigning king of stand-up. And I love a lot of comedians, but that's, he's somebody who I can just listen to. And the lyric did not sit well with everybody involved. So sadly, that song sits dormant, not yet on a record. Mm. But I'm hoping that the energy will shift to the point where we can put out that song. What was wrong with the lyric? Um, in my opinion, it was beautiful. And, um, you know, we're also full of greatness and fallibility and mistakes and accomplishments. And so the lyric was Dave Chappelle for president. And it's in a really beautiful melody. And it's a very lighthearted statement. But um, because, you know, there's kind of that tradition of uh, campaign banners where it's like WC Fields for president. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it just kind of fit into the chorus Dave Chappelle for president. I wasn't like making a serious statement. It was just like. Uh, oh, I see uh, what you're saying. So uh, it was during the time of all of his controversy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But the song is so flotatious and groovy and laid back and you might just feel like you're in the mountains listening to the song. Mm. So someday I'll share it with you whether it gets released or not. I'll trade you a, a copy of that song for a copy you of one, got it. one of your Richard Pryor cassettes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Beautiful. I'll send you those in the email. It's, uh, there's, they're available. A lot of them are available online. You know, the, yeah. the Red Fox okay. ones. They're fucking great, man. Because you get to see them experiment, you know. There's that's one of the the joys of the internet today. Back when I was a kid, I mean, you had to find those at a mm -hmm. truck stop. You know, now you can just find them like that online. It's like there's a, a beautiful thing about that. I mean, it's kind of some of it's kind of fucked because like the magic of discovering this thing is not there anymore. You know, because now it's available instantaneously. But yeah. still, it's better that way. It's different. It's different. It's different. But it's, it can reach more people. That's what I like about it. If that's the goal, then yes, yeah. for sure it's more successful. But yeah. I don't even mean more successful because he's gone. I mean, like right now, people listening can go. And uh, one of them was called Playing Crap. Was it called Craps? Something like that. I forget what it's called. But um, that someone can listen to this and then go on YouTube and then bam they can get it. Yeah. Like there it is. Craps. Ooh. After hours. Ooh, I like the cover. It's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in. Full, I'm sold. How many minutes is that, Jamie? 32, 32 minutes. That's yeah. a great poster. I'll put that up 36. in my bedroom. Yeah, 36 minutes. It's fucking great. Yeah. And this is, you know, probably it's put online. Somebody put it online in 2011. They probably put it online after we talked about it. Because <laughs> we talked about it way back then for yeah. sure. Because I yeah. talked about how great it was just to be listening to these live recordings from these comedy clubs. It is a great thing. It, 71, 1971. Is, there is something about the process of seeking out and searching and putting in the 
the due diligence to find that yeah. or to show up to the show or yeah. go to the record store yeah. <clears throat> that made it all a bit more cool. Right. That now you just tap that button and it's there. So yeah, you're reaching a larger audience. I think you said it right. <clears throat> I think it's different. It's different. Yeah. It's not better or worse, right? It's different. Same with same with rock and roll. Mm. Yeah. What do you, how what was it like for you guys when all of that um the the streaming thing when it all came to be with Napster and there was this big uproar? <clears throat> how did you guys um how did you feel about that when all that was going on? Cuz that was the giant shift, right? Napster was the great shift when the internet sort of realized like, "Oh, we could just get this stuff for free." Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some people were furious about it. Like, I, I interviewed um, Paul Stanley from KISS once, and he was like, man, it's stealing. You're fucking stealing <clears throat> my music. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Because, like, some people didn't think of it that mm-hmm. way at all. They, they thought of it that, like, well, this is a way my fans can get my music easier. And if you really want to support me and you like the music, go buy the CD, too. But, like, I'm happy you got it. I did not have time or energy to even care about it. Like my focus was so just wanting to make good music and and put in the effort that whatever happened to it afterwards, I didn't even care. Mm. Well, so, you guys had already made so much money selling actual physical records by then, right? Um, what year did Napster happen? I want to say it was like ninety nine ish. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we made our, our lion's share of cash flow in the 2000s. Really? I think so. Well, people are still 100% still buying CDs. Yes. And it when did it die? Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Ish. I didn't care. Napster didn't bother me. It was like, if, if that's what's happening, that's happening. Really, I just wanted to be a good band member and a productive bandmate and do our thing and go play live, which you can't replicate. Right. You know, that's the thing that kind of kept us alive even when record sales disappeared. Right. When we go play live, people show up. Right. So I wasn't worried about the money, but I think even if that had happened earlier when I was less financially capable, I don't care. We were never in it for the money. The money was a bonus. It would just be you would just be like, well, this is how it is now. This is how it is now. I, we we didn't miss a beat. We we never wasted a, a moment. A lot of the people who are more com- commerce oriented, you know, fought tooth and nail like this can't happen. And and yeah, there's probably some injustices going on in there where corporations are taking advantage of certainly the, those yeah. opportunities. I don't have that much time and and space to devote to fighting those i have i'd rather spend my time and energy making something good good for you man that's just that's a great attitude because like i didn't disagree with how lars lars ulrich felt Mm -hmm. about it. i understood what he was saying but i was like man that's a bad look it's just like you're you're so wealthy and so successful Mm -hmm. and the people that are downloading your music for free are your fucking fans (laughs) and a lot of them are poor you know and now they can get it and they can get it right away. And for you to call them like thieves mm. and get angry and tell people not to do it, like man, this is a new disruptive, disruptive technology, and you're not going to stop it. Definitely and you, not. And I think some people, uh, maybe some older folks who weren't in tune with the the new internet, 
Like they thought somehow or another you were going to stop it. And I was like, man, you don't understand this genie. Because that bottle, that cork is off that bottle. And this whole thing is, this is the future, man. It's going to change for everybody with everything, whether it's with movies, with everything you could imagine. It's all going to be available now. And people that thought it were really just losing ground. Mm -hmm. So our record company, Warner Brothers, were very slow to recognize the the power of the internet. And and they they got hurt. Mm. And so... We just put out a record a couple of days ago and another double record in the same year, which is kind of a beautiful thing. But the <clears throat> the main guy from the record company showed up, very lovely dude, cares about music, super into the band. And I was like, well, we have to make sure that this doesn't leak. This is two weeks ago. And he's like, well, we've, we've, we've kind of changed our tune on that lately. If it leaks, it leaks. So even these gigantic behemoth companies mm. are now like, okay, so it, it leaked. It's just makes it more popular. Yeah, just more people tell people about it. I don't care. Good for you, man. Yeah. I just want people to hear it. You know, I believe that from you. Some people would say that I go, eh, he fucking cares. But <laughs> for you, I really, really believe it. It's it's easy for me to say I'm not missing meals. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't expect to sell records these days. That's not an expectation. There was a time when I did, but now I feel like music is made just to be played. Mm. We get paid at our live shows. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing just fine. Well, it was sold out the other day, Zilker (laughs) Park. It was fucking awesome. Yeah. Well, that's an institution, so I think that sells out no matter what. But Well, you guys are an institution. Yeah. You were one of those guys when I first met you. I was like, oh, shit, he's right there. Hmm. It was weird. When was it's that? Like, oh, I don't remember. I don't know if we met. Uh, our kids went to school together. I don't know if we met there for the first time or if we met at the UFC for the first time. I don't I, remember. I feel like I met you in an arena like early in the day the for some fights. Yeah. 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 And I was like, that guy's a UFC fan? Uh. That's wild. It was weird. I was like, I thought you were like this super, and you are, this like super peaceful kind of hippie guy. And for you to be like really into the UFC. But then when we talked about it, I got it because you really respected the athletes and the difficulty of what they're doing and how tremendous the whole promotion was and the way they would put these fights together and the excitement of it all. They're good. That's a good promotion. They're the best. I adore. Adore combat sports. I adored boxing when I was a kid. I Bruce Lee was everything to me in 1974. Everything. I built nunchucks out of a broom. <laughs> put them in my back pocket. Went to school. And uh, and the evolution of mixed martial arts is divine and one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me in my lifetime. Like that to do, talk about. Lucky to be born at a certain time and place. Yeah. Yeah. It's exquisite. And the funny thing is fighting outside of a ring or a cage or a mat, it, it crushes my heart. Like violence in real life kills me. Mm. Like pain. Put it in, you know, like dedicate your life to the art and it becomes a chess match. Yeah. All day, every day. 
Yeah. I am, I'm a super fan. I agree. I'm not really a big fan of fist fights. I think no. it's fist fights in the street. I'm like, God, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, it's just like there's nothing in there for you. Don't do it. Yeah. And it's like just bravado and nonsense and just but what I call fighting, you know, like what I call it high level problem solving with dire physical consequences. Mm. And that's really what it is. It's yeah. like to me it's like just like this ultimately exciting endeavor. And I love it when someone like you appreciates it. It was very exciting for me to see you there because I was a giant fan of Chili Peppers and to see that you actually appreciate it. You weren't just a guy there for a scene because there's a lot of people that go there. They're just there for an event, mm. which is cr- great. Fine. <laughs> it's it's a great event. You know, it's it's wild to see. But you actually were asking questions and you were really into it, you know. Still am. Yeah. It does not fade. No. I watched Alexa point out her victory mm-hmm. two nights ago last night yeah so, yeah, yeah yeah Alexa Grasso she's a beast yeah she's a beast and she gets better mm-hmm. with every fight yeah I don't know that she's ready for Shevchenko I don't know if anybody is that lady's a goddamn assassin no we're not ready for that Woo. yeah she's wild but I love Alexa's trajectory yeah no there, it's an exciting exciting time man it's a it's amazing like what the sport has become from when I first watched it in 93 or 94, I think mm-hmm. it was the first event mm-hmm. that I saw to, I've been working for them now for, I've been working as a commentator for 20, 20 years. And before that, I was, for two years, I was a post-fight interviewer mm-hmm. in the early 90s, or the late 90s rather, 97. Amazing. I, yeah. I saw that first UFC event. Compliments of Guy Osiri, who had a, cable box mm. and he called me up on a landline and said there's a no holds barred fighting competition of <laughs> one art form against another and it happens in 30 minutes get over to my house wow. and we sat on the couch and watched that and i was like that's interesting 1993 yeah this shout is out interesting. to Horian gracie and hoist gracie because back yeah. then it was like one against another like mm-hmm. karate versus jiu-jitsu or, right yeah, you know, shooto boxing versus uh, a bouncer, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, obviously it's come a long way, but well, there's not really a sport that's evolved that much since 1993 no. to 2022, where it's unrecognizable the difference between the the sport then and the sport now. It's unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. It's so much different. There's really. There's never been a, a thing like that where you you're, you get the chance to see a complete evolution of combat sports. Like martial arts have evolved more since 1993 than they have in the last 10,000 years. And that is 100% undeniable fact. Pretty exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. It's very exciting. I get excited when I run into somebody on the street who watched the fights the night before because mm. I'll sit there for 30 minutes and yeah. go over it. And, uh, yeah. To this day, I'm excited about it. They, to this day, me and Dana White, sometimes I'll call him at like 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and he and I will have two-hour conversation about fights. Just two hours. That's fun. It about does, this it, and that. I mean, we, we're both so jaded. We should be so jaded. No. We've both it, been involved for so long. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's amazing. Yep. I love it. I, I love what you do for the sport. Nobody does it better. Thank you. And I love what Dana does for the sport. 
He's the best. Nobody does it better. He's the best. He's the best front man that any sport's ever had. I ever. think so. And he takes so much grief and gets so much hate. And he's done things that I am not down with. I hate politics and sports. I'd rather keep them separate like church and state. Yeah. But I don't care. He has given the world joy and he's given opportunities and jobs for so many athletes, people like ignore the fact that he has given tens of thousands of people a dream and houses and food on the table. It's endless. I look at all these fighters. You know, fighter pay is an issue. Yeah, I want fighters to get paid. I know thousands that live in houses that would not normally be able to do that because Dana works his ass off and he loves it and he cares and he's relentless and he put in the years so so many props to him for bringing those dreams to life and i feel like i have to uh balance out some of the hate he gets yeah well he's gonna get hate no matter what you do you're a person in a position like he's in position of prominence mm -hmm. and you know whether or not the criticism is valid what what is valid is the praise i when i introduce him when i do the weigh-ins mm -hmm. i always say Without him, none of this would be possible. Because mm. it's true. Yep. I know what that guy's done. I know the work that he's put in. I know how hard he's worked. And also, he's a guy who doesn't bow down to bullshit. He doesn't back off. And he kept that sport alive during the pandemic. When everybody was saying, you're crazy, you're going to kill people, we're <laughs> all going to die. He was like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're going to test everybody. And we're going to put on fucking safe shows. Yeah. We're going to create a COVID bubble. We're going to make sure everybody's safe. And he did it. And he did it. And then everybody we got the else apex followed out suit. Of it. Yes, we got the Apex Center. Well, the Apex Center was actually already in construction. In construction, but we got fight yes. nights. Fight nights. We got to see some world championship fights at the Apex Center, which were fucking incredible. Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou. Ngannou won the world title at the Apex Center. Tough it night was, for Stipe. Um, oh, my God. I don't think the hair helped his cause. He came out there with the fluffy hairdo. I was like, no. Well, I don't think that had anything to do with it. Uh, I think it was Francis had developed skills to match with his power, you know, and he also developed patience, you know. Yeah. He, no, no, no. I would just, I just, the I hair, the hair threw me off. I was like, you're facing Francis. Come in with a buzz cut. Come in like. Well, he beat him the first time, you know, and he was the first guy to beat him. And uh, cardio wrestling, cardio wrestling, and and his chin. And I think, uh, you know, he took some tremendous shots in that fight. And I think that fight. Sometimes you win a fight, but you take the an amount of punishment that will change who you are. Yeah, it'll you know? show up in the next fight. Yeah. yeah. It'll change who you are for the future. And you just, you don't get through a five-round fight with Francis Ngannou without taking some tremendous shots, you know? They're talking so, about him fighting John Jones now, which is be very interesting. Yeah, if if the Stipe fight falls through with John. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. John Jones and Stipe. They're talking about oh, John Oh, oh yes, Stipe. yes. Yeah. Great fight. Yeah. Competitive fight. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting because, you know, we haven't seen John in a long time, and now John is huge. He is? Yeah, I mean, gosh. Power lifter? Yeah, he's fucking put on a lot of muscle. He's done it smart, taking his time, you know, and, uh, I mean, he's got probably one of the highest fight IQs the sport's ever seen. He does? So I'm excited to see that. If if he was fighting Francis, I'd be a little more concerned, but I feel like Stipe's 
older. Mm-hmm. And that's a to me seems like a competitive fight. Well, I have a feeling it'll be one or the other. I don't know when it's going to go down. You know, I don't know when that fight is going to happen. I don't know when John's going to make his heavyweight debut, but I'm very interested. I'm very interested. Whether I'm there for that fight or not, mm-hmm. I am watching. Of course, of course. Look at this. John Jones still hopeful to make heavyweight debut at UFC 82. 282. What is 282? Is that December? Yes. That December, December 10th. 10th. Mm. So I think the headliner in that is Glover Teixeira's rematch with uh, Yuri Prohaska. Mm-hmm. Is that it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'll be a good one. You going to be there? You on tour still? Uh, I'm off tour, and I'm moving to the Hawaiian Islands oh, for shit. November, December. Are you really? Yeah. I, ne- I need to go be on a mountain uh, as an island. I get it. I have to unplug for a minute and just get in the Which ocean. island? Uh, I never met a Hawaiian island I didn't like. <laughs> but I will be on Kauai. Kauai is supposed to be amazing. It's all right. It's good. That's it's good. Uh, it's good. where yeah. Laird and uh, Gabby live. That's right. Yeah. Shout they- out to them. Yeah, they're my neighbors. Oh, they've nice. always been very good to me. They're great people. They've been I very love them good. Both. Yeah, they're amazing people. Yeah, they really are. They're stunners. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sadly, if if I was anywhere in the mainland, I would be at a bunch of these fights. Yeah. But I have to, I have to go. I get it. Yeah, I miss being at the fights so much. I got to see one live here in Austin for the first time in 20 years as a spectator. It was right. fucking amazing. And then I got to see one recently at the Apex Center. Yeah. Me and uh, Tony Hinchcliffe and my friend Radio Rahim, we did a, a, a triple header combat sports. We did the, the triple crown of combat sports. We went to the Abu Dhabi World Jiu-Jitsu Championships. Then we went to the UFC at the Apex mm-hmm. Center, then we went to see Canelo Alvarez versus mm, Triple G. Amazing! It was amazing. What a day! What a day! Who is competing at the Abu Dhabi's? Uh, well, it was Gordon Ryan and the the, the, the champ. King. Yeah, and he, he Damn, dominated he's again. He's the best ever. What the hell? He's the best ever. He's fucking so dedicated, so smart, so driven, so dedicated, and he's only twenty-seven. He's only twenty-seven. Yeah, he looks older. Well, you know. He's fucking training seven days a week. He's good. Guy's an animal. I, I love watching him. Yeah, no, he's incredible. I so, love watching him fight other super animals. And destroy them. And destroy them. <laughs> it's crazy. He's taking the best of the best, and he makes it look easy. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. It's very strange mm-hmm. how good he is. But it's it is. also his coach, John Donaher, who is a, a, a legitimate wizard. I mean, he's a guy who was a professor of philosophy at mm-hmm. Columbia University and then fell in love with jiu-jitsu and that, became the greatest coach of all time. That's the calligraphy thing. Yes. That you were talking yep, about. Yep, 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 yep. It's, it's also th- this no bullshit, no frills, no excuses, mm-hmm. no nonsense, just pure analysis of what it is, of what, what the, the sport is. And because of that, they're ahead of everybody by leaps and bounds. By years, yeah, uh, I'll I'll check him out on on YouTube. Yeah, all day. It's like, well, they have some matches here too. You know, it's really interesting. There's going to be one in California. I think he's competing in California. Hmm. Oh, I want to say it's like they're having a sometime in the winter. He's got a, a big match. I want to say it's February. There's a big match in California that I might I might fly in to check out. If I'm back from uh, down under. I will check that out. All right. Well, yeah. stay in touch. Next week is pretty exciting. 
yeah. for, for the MMA very world. Exciting. Yeah. yeah, very exciting. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be in London. Uh, I'm, I'm doing the O2 Arena on that Saturday night that uh, Oliveira fights uh, Makachev. So I can't, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to see maybe if I, I'm hoping. You're halfway there. When I get off stage, I'll be able to either watch it. I'm not, I don't know how it lines up time-wise mm. with London time. I'll either be able to watch it before or after I get off stage. I think it's prelims start at 7 a.m. in California. Mm. Oh, they're doing it that way. Yeah. Oh, so they're doing it on Abu Dhabi time. That's interesting. Mm. You have a you have a gig in London. Yeah, I have Stand a gig up. in London. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where's that? That's at the O2. The O2. Yeah. Hot dog. Yeah, it should be fun. I've played there. Yeah, it's great. It's fun. I've been there for UFC. I've never done the stand up there. So that's uh, Saturday night. So, um, one way or another, I will watch the fight. Hopefully, if it's taking place while I'm on stage, mm -hmm. I can like blah blah blah, not listening, <laughs> and then I can get back to my room. And I don't even know how the fuck to watch it. I might have to get like do it through um, uh, a VPN. You know, and pretend I'm somewhere else and mm -hmm. then get online through ESPN Plus because I tried it when I was in Italy. It's hard. Yeah, I tried watching ESPN Plus in Italy and they're like, it's not available in no. your country. I'm like, fuck off. Panic. Yeah, what is this shit? So I, I tour and I have that all the time. What happened? What do you do it? How do you? I text the UFC and say, uh... please help me. I'm in Austria and I can't get the fights. And they hook you up. Yes. Damn it. it I, how do I, I, how I, do might... I not know that? Yeah. It's de desperation, desperation. Mm, well, yeah. Oh, I hate that when they're like, "Yeah, we don't recognize your account here." Yeah, fucking bullshit. Why? Why can't you get ESPN Plus in Italy? That's stupid. Regional. Get it together, bitches. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The hard part is also not finding out the results. Right. Yeah. You got to plug your ears. I'll People, get in the car. Did you watch the? No. Flea, don't. Flea talk. is the great spoiler of all <laughs> time. Oh my god! Uh, I was like. I paused my computer. I was going to watch that when I got to the next hotel. It's like checking your Christmas presents, though. You can't help yourself. Like, you almost want to see the results you do. anyway. You do. Like, ah, just fucking tell me the you results. You do. You know, you just yeah. almost go online and then enjoy the fight with the knowledge of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I'll still enjoy yep. it. I've yep. watched them multiple times. Like, I watched uh, Leon Edwards versus Kamaru Usman. I've watched that, like, three or four times. I know what happened. I'll still yep. watch it. Yep. And by the way, it's still exciting. It's that crazy. moment. That moment when there's a minute to go and he lands that head kick and you're like, no fucking way. It's one of those things where even though you know it happened, you still can't believe it when you watch it again. You know who else can't believe it? Kamaru. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to him. Uh, we, had, we did a podcast just a couple weeks later. Yeah. One of the things that he said it was kind of a relief. He did. Yeah, it's like he the crown his, is heavy. The crown's heavy. Heavy. Yeah. Oh, it's put a kink in your neck. It's a tough way to make a living. It is tough way to make a living. But also, to Leon's credit, he never quit, especially no. after that speech between four and five. Yeah. yeah. But also, he had the stamina to execute. Yes. A powerful fast kick. Yeah. Twenty-four minutes into a fight. Right. That's hard to do. And land it perfect. You might be tired. Your muscles yeah. might be fatigued. It was the perfect head kick. It was yeah. the greatest come-from-behind head kick knockout in the history of the sport. He set like, it up. While it was happening, I couldn't believe it happened. Like, while it happened, I was like, there's no way that just happened. 
because he was losing the fight. And yeah. Dean Thomas was just saying he's broken. It seems like he's broken. And then whack. Pretty good pretty shot. good speech by his corner. Oh, my God. And right after John Anik was saying that is not his nature to quit. Like John Anik was just saying that it is not Leon's nature to quit. And then he lands that head kick. John, Boom. John's pretty on it. He's the best. He's really, John Anik is the best. He's unbelievable. He's the best play-by-play guy in the history of the sport. I think he cares he's about his job. the best. He's the most informed. He's the most in tune. He's the smoothest. He's a fucking master. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, Mike Goldberg was excellent at it. There's a lot of people who are excellent at it. But John Anik is on another level. He's good. Yeah. He, he does his homework, too. He very, very, very much does. Yeah, and he's a great guy, too. I love him to death. And he was correct. Yeah, he was fucking, it's like prescient. Like, he, he nailed it. He yeah. said it. Listen, I love you. It's always good to see you. I appreciate you coming in here. Thank you. I love you, too. And you know what Albert Einstein said to his daughter at the end of his life? My only regret is that I didn't express my love more deeply while I was still around with you. Uh that's heavy. He said it was the most powerful force in the universe, power, more powerful than anything else. Love. Well, it definitely is for people. Yeah. Yeah, that's who we are. I don't think black holes give a fuck about your love, but <laughs> I could be wrong. No, but, but <laughs> our love could help us figure out a way to coexist with the black hole. Yes. Yeah, or survive long enough and not kill each other to the yeah. point where someone can figure out how to I'm coexist. not getting in the octagon with the black hole. Doesn't seem like a wise no, choice. No, no. I love you and thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. It was fun. Until we meet again. Until we meet again. And I'm going to check out the five rings. Sounds good. Yeah. Bye, everybody.